Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Amazing life. Dude. Yeah. The hustle and grind. Man. I know, man. And then that LA story. Oh. God. Exclusive, world exclusive of how to open up a crazy boba shop in the middle of LA. Don't recommend like, it, man. Don't recommend it. I know. From the CEO of this huge tech company to like hustling, grinding. Grinding, man. Shaking boba, waking up early in the mornings. I know. Because they, they're Tough. talking about, you know, the shaked tea right here in Taiwan. But, right. But it's a hustle. It's a hustle. When the CEO actually has to do it. Yeah. That's why I don't recommend it. <laughs> Buy franchise, maybe that's easier. <laughs> just get to that point, right? Where you just sell them, mm. sell them off, sell a bunch of franchises, take over maybe. the U.S. Maybe, maybe, maybe. hopefully, okay. hopefully, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you will. Hopefully, man. Yeah. Gonna check out Texas uh, when I'm in LA next year. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, we'll make it happen. There. I'll hook you up with my brother. Nice. And then, um, yeah, hopefully, if I can go out there as well, because I haven't been there in a bit. So definitely want to check out what's going on there as well. So, but yeah, you should definitely meet him. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So, any questions? No, man. Okay. Yeah. We will talk. I will give you a little bit of introduction, and then we'll just go. Are you ready, sir? Let's do it. All right, here we go. Good afternoon, and welcome back to another episode of Firelight Chats, where we broadcast the most super, natural, and compelling voices and stories from our Space Lab studio here in Da'an, Taipei, Taiwan. Every end, of course, is a new beginning. And as we approach again the very tail end of 2023, the denouement of another season, we also look forward to 2024 and all that it has in store for us, like an Ouroboros nonplussed, as it heads back into its own future, a little bit older, a little bit wiser, discombobulating and spitting fire, casting zodiacs of light and spreading mirth like the naked truth, hopping around like a silly rabbit reincarnated as a long and long dragon. Hardly oblivious as well to all which sadly ails our human civilization, we'll choose for now to end on a warm and positive note in this holiday season. And what better way than with a guest who has spent his life immersing himself in a panoply of new beginnings, creating, founding, exploring, and starting new businesses with his fair share of entering and exiting markets just in time to set his sights on yet another enticing target. This man of whom I speak is the distinguished startup founder and operator of some of Asia's largest tech companies, including serving as group COO of Happy Fresh, a Southeast Asia-based grocery technology company and CEO co-founder of Food Panda Taiwan, a food delivery platform that in a mere four years he built like a rocket from zero to over 500 employees, and which was eventually sold to Delivery Hero, 
which in turn, no cap, IPO'd at a 5 billion US dollar market cap. This guest of ours also has experience in management consulting at Deloitte, product management at RIM, BlackBerry and Oracle, and has degrees from McGill University, UBC in Vancouver, and an exchange stint at Keio University in Tokyo. He was born in Canada. He is a cousin of powerful Angela Fung of episode 45. He is a fellow gold car visa holder here in Taiwan, and his work has taken him to Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, and beyond. And now, in his most recent venture, he's been unfurling tea shops in my home state of California, with premium tea leaves falling from the heavens in the city of angels. With the first one located right off the iconic Sawtelle West Side, a few wing flaps away from where I once made my cuckoo's nest. But the flagship store is perched right here in the east side of Taipei. And even amidst fashionable Dongchu, with its singularly unique design and unconventional layout, you certainly won't miss it as it's still the only bona fide odd one out. The store is quite photogenic and beautiful. Two stories tall and many stories yet to be told. But beauty is only skin deep and his artisans of tea are trained to seriously seep, brewing beneath the superficial and into a small batch sea of craftsmanship and creativity. Difference is celebrated. Weirdness is embraced. Traditional tapioca, boba, is audaciously nowhere to be chewed. The menu is eclectic, rules are broken, ice cream is champion, awards have been won. And this venture, this silkiest of adventures, has only really just begun. So with that, with our backs to 2023, let us both close out this year as well as enjoy the flavors of future promise. Tickle our taste buds with some fizzy bliss. Celebrate being appropriately thirsty. Toast to whatever keeps us fresh and makes us happy. And cheers to never-ending quenching percolations like flames of passion and curiosity as Mocha and I sit by the fireside to freestyle chat, create, connect, communicate, and indulge in the stories with our guests for this latest episode of Firelight Chats the one and only and the oddest one out though still a handsome man mr ronald chan dude that was crazy you are so pro that was awesome <laughs> welcome sir thank you very much for having me it's my pleasure it's an honor it is my honor sir the oddest one out and about in taipei in los angeles all around the world what do we owe this pleasure to, sir? Thank you for having me. Um, it's, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Glad to uh, finish off the year with you, chatting about life, about anything that you want. You know, I'm excited to be here. So exactly. It's pleasure. a holiday gift for everyone out there. We have the man himself here to wrap up this wonderful season of ours, but you know, no better way to do it than with some tea, right? We can cheers to good drinks, good times, good conversation, good friends, 
good memories. Absolutely. All of these things. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We met because your cousin, the powerful, the, the all-powerful Angela Fung. The house of Fung. Exactly. We have to give her all due respect before we begin. So let us pray. Let us take a moment of silence. For, <laughs> a moment of silence and wellness to Angela Fung. She's a great girl. I know. Yeah. I'll be How about we get into that? Tell us some secrets about Angela. Well, actually- um, <laughs> What can you say to embarrass that girl? Oh man, I could say a lot because um, I think people know that, you know, I'm her cousin, very, very popular girl all over the world, no matter where she goes, Taipei, Shanghai. Um, what people don't know is I lived with her for about three years during her university days in Montreal. So she was living at my mom's place. You know, that's probably when she was 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, until she graduated. So I spent three years living with her, watching her grow up, taking care of her when I can. You know, new girl. Changing her diapers. Uh, <laughs> no, maybe helping her maybe change her clothes when she puked all over it. Because oh, what people don't know, there we go. Angela, Angela has a reputation of, um, she doesn't drink. I don't know if you know that, but Angela yeah. just doesn't drink. Right, right, right. Um, that wasn't the case when she was 17, 18 oh. in Montreal in university. She had her experience with alcohol. So this Taipei girl. Yeah, that's the secret. Right? She used to drink. She used to drink, going to university, going to parties and drinking, no you know, way. puking all over. Um, and that changed, obviously. But, you know, that's that's a little secret of Angela Fang. Oh, no way. Yeah. Before right. the wellness. <laughs> there that's was right. bouts of drunkenness. <laughs> right. right. In right. Montreal. That's right. Right. And I don't know. Is there much to do in Montreal? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, It's cold in the winters. She talked about that. Very cold, but what Montreal is really well known for, it's actually, it's strip clubs. It's Mon strip, strip clubs. clubs. Montreal is like the strip club mecca of Canada, which is really? comparable to Las Vegas. So that's la, la. a big thing. And I think the big difference is that for Montrealers, like strip clubs don't, it's not dirty or nasty, like maybe some in the US and Montreal is very classy. Ooh. So, um, you know, it's storytelling time right here. Um, Montreal strip clubs would be not in like little hidden little alleys. It's like downtown flagship, uh, like high end shopping districts. No right. Way. Yeah. Just like, um, it's like Xing Yi. Yeah. Honestly, it is this Xing Yi. So basically, Catherine Street, which is the shopping street, like, you know, Fifth Avenue. Fifth Avenue. It, it, it is the shopping street. And in the very, very prime in the middle was the biggest strip club in Montreal called Club Super Sex. Cl and, and it's called Club, club Super, Super Sex. Sex. Now, the funny thing is, it's also right beside McGill Campus. Oh, right beside. So that's why you went there. So not I'll because you, it was a good school. No, 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 no. I'll <laughs> tell you why. Well, I'll tell you why I went to this strip club. That strip club had the best lunch buffets. Oh, that's that a good was excuse, so sir. cheap. And as a student, you know, you can't really afford, you know, expensive lunches. You're trying to save money. The lunch buffets used to be $2 Canadian, which is probably at that time, $1.5 USD for a lunch buffet. That's really delicious. All you got to do is buy a drink, you know, a beer and you get this lunch buffet and you see naked girls, very classy, beautiful naked girls. In the middle of the day. In the middle of the day. So a lot of students from McGill would come over for the food and guys and females, like guys and girls would go because it's not like super shady, like how it is in other places right. in America. They kind of classed it up right in the center of prime real estate, Montreal. Students would go in, business meetings would happen there. 
That's um, amazing. Yeah, that's that's a funny thing that's about Montreal. That's a great Montreal. business model. Yeah. In their downtime, they yeah. just like capitalize on the student market. Student market, you know, good food, good entertainment. <laughs> wow. What kind of food do they serve? Oh, it's like lasagna, uh, salad bar, chicken, just like, you know, your typical American buffet right. type of food. And better than like the food court at McGill. Yeah, McGill's food court. We didn't really have a standard food court at McGill. We had a lot of small little restaurants around, but yeah, the quality wasn't that great. So, but we were downtown. So, you know, you left campus and you would go anywhere you wanted to eat, right? So you'll go to the shopping mall food court or you go to this place called Club Super Sex. That's crazy. Yeah. I think right now McGill is getting a bunch of applications from Taiwanese (laughs) students for next year. Suddenly McGill looks better than University of Toronto. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what about toronto do you know if they have their like competing super club um I, well you know i've <laughs> is this never a canada thing or is this montreal well, a lot of people it's a montreal thing because so um number one what made the strip clubs really popular in, in montreal specifically is because the age requirements to enter was only 18 so drinking Ooh. age in montreal is 18 years old versus america which is 21 okay. and toronto which is 19 so there's actually a huge huge influx of tourists going to drink mm. party strip clubs from uh, the u.s they'll just drive over border you know it takes a couple of hours to drive right. um, even people from toronto will come over to party as well so I um, don't know much about the Toronto strip club scene. <laughs> Not like the strip club connoisseur. <laughs> I know, exactly. But wow, that makes sense. Because it might be that French influence, why they allow the uh, drinking as well from a younger age. Right. And right. the I don't know how it is now, but when we were growing up, it was very laxed, right? Because mm. maybe that French influence, you know, we didn't do that hardcore ID checking. Um, right. We have something in Montreal called a saint cassette which translates to a five to seven, okay. which is literally almost every bar in town has a five to seven happy hour. That's our happy Ooh, hour okay. every day. So the culture in Montreal was after you finish work at five, American working hours, um, you would go hour. straight to happy hour. You'll drink with your colleagues, get drunk at seven, and then you would go home. So that's a, a very Montreal culture. Okay. Set, people did it. Everyone does that. Everybody does it. Every bar would open up. Every restaurant would have this happy hour type of, special so how does i'm asking the connoisseur how does the strip club change at night how does the ambiance maybe the lady selection maybe uh, no the music no lunch selection? buffet no, no lunch okay no I lunch see. buffet no, no buffet no buffet right buffet of other things <laughs> um did you ever go yeah, as, as you know, when I was young, I went, Ronald. you know, like, Ronald. So, you know, I'll run into like my older sister, uh, her friends, you know, like you know, funny, I'll run really. into them. But, you know, you go a couple of times in your lifetime, you're kind of done with it. So I probably mm. stopped going when I was 18, you know, 19. Okay. You know, I don't think it changed too much. Maybe the clientele changes, but it's very different from, you know, that when America views strip clubs, they view it as, you know, like degenerates who go there, drunkards who would go there. In Montreal, it's very different. It it is. So a lot of business meetings would go there. There'll be a huge female clientele going there. It's not just old men. It's young people, guys and girls going there for drinks. The women there are, and that's the reputation of Montreal. The Montreal strip clubs, the women are beautiful they're not like these you know 40 year old plus drug ridden mm. they're 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 like really How dare pretty you young. speak of vegas like that <laughs> maybe vegas might be different right i think vegas might be a little different but, but um, some in la i wouldn't eat near in. lax oh god i would near the near the airports i would never ever 
It's yeah, it does not appetize me at all whatsoever. <laughs> nice choice of words there, appetize. <laughs> what about jazz? Because Montreal also has like a pretty famous jazz festival, jazz festival every summer. It's one of the biggest festivity events of Montreal. So we do the jazz just for laugh and F1 almost around the same time. So it's like one festival over the other. So Montreal during the summertime is a fantastic place to be because of all these festivals, they close down the main uh, downtown area. So mm. it's, you know, those cars, they turn it all into a walking area with stalls, pedestrian. music, pedestrians, and it's huge. And people from all over the world would get there, uh, restaurants, music, Food people drinking, everywhere. food stalls. Yeah, and oh. the alcohol is very cheap, age limit again, only being 18. So a lot of people would come up and enjoy those festivities for three, four months. Mm. Um, and then we deal with the winter, which makes Montreal not such a great place to be during the winter. But How uh, cold does it get? Uh, minus 40 on the coldest days at Celsius, minus no 40 way. degrees Celsius on its coldest days. Average in the winter, if I remember correctly, was maybe like minus 20, like an average winter cold day. Okay. Minus 20, which is super cold, by That's the way. freezing, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, you get used to it. I was born and raised there, so I didn't know any better. Right. Um, I just thought that's life. You know, you have your winters and it's really cold. You just kind of learn how to deal with it. Yeah, go um, outside naked, run around. Well, you know what the crazy thing is? I, I remember because like I was so used to it and I was really into fashion when I was younger. So during the winters when it's like minus 20, minus 40, like I'll have a leather jacket on. That, you know, and I, I wouldn't wear like gloves. Like, you know, I'll just make sure that my ears are kind of like not Cover. too exposed right, for too right, long. Right. But, you know, I'm not wearing these giant Canada goose jackets, right. which is fashionable these days. Exactly. But, but back in the day, a lot of Montrealers, because they're so used to it, would still try to be extremely fashionable mm. during the winter time. And Montreal is known to be also a very fashionable. I don't think you can consider it one of the fashion capitals of the world, but we are known to be very, very fashionable in Canada, more than it's Toronto. Like Want to be Paris. Yes. Because again, with <laughs> yeah, the fr yeah, French yeah. influence. So that's another cool thing about Montreal. And as you know, I think when the cold weather comes along, you could put on layers, especially for a guy that looks good, right? You right. have those long trench coats, a scarf. Like you can't do that in Singapore. That's why everybody mm. wears shorts and flip-flops. And I think it's a very unfashionable city because of that. Right. But in Montreal, you have that opportunity to put on layers of clothing. So that's another, you know, tidbit about Montreal growing up there. Okay. Yeah, people, you know, we're, we're just used to the winters and we still try to be fashionable during the wintertime. Leather jackets. I did the leather jacket. The yeah, I didn't do boots. I did sneakers, um, <laughs> you know, never put on boots. I probably owned a pair, but I would never wear it. And you just get used to walking on the ice, walking in that wet snow, you know what to avoid, you know, right, that's, right, right. that's how we do it. So what is the origin story of Montreal? When did your parents kind of immigrate there? And is it from Taiwan and what part of Taiwan? Right. So I'll start off with my dad. Uh, my dad's from Guangzhou. So mm. he was the first, he immigrated to Montreal, to Canada when he was about 10, if I'm not mistaken. When the first refugee families, I think the first refugee boat, you know, came up. first came, boat. The first boat that came over from China when Canada opened its borders and was doing this program to invite a lot of immigrants into the country. My grandfather was an engineer, so he qualified, you know, gave everything up in China, you know, with the whole communism thing going on, came to Canada. My dad was with him and they settled in the Chinese Catholic church. Mm. So he grew up kind of like in a church environment okay. um, growing up. So, you know, that's how my dad got to Montreal. 
So he's one of the few Chinese immigrants in Montreal that speak, you know, Chinese, English, and French quite fluently because he grew up in Montreal. Right. right? He grew up as a Canadian. My mom came a little later. My mom came from Taiwan when she was, I think, about maybe 17, 18. So came over with her family, part of her family at least, and went to went to university. And they eventually met, I think, uh, post-university days through an introduction from one of my aunties. So that's, you know, their story. So they met Mm. in Montreal. Um, So she went around the same time Angela also went later. uh, Yeah, that's right. That's right. Did your mom also get drunk and did you have to change her clothes? (laughs) (laughs) That I wouldn't know. But knowing my mom, she's, you know, uh, she can't drink. She's like me, you know, one sip of alcohol, she gets all fluttered. So that's probably where I get the genes. You know, my dad can drink a little more. Okay. Right. So you're a cheap date. Uh, I'm definitely a cheap date. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Five bucks. I'll do anything. (laughs) You'll get on stage. At this Club Super Sex. Super Sex. Club, Club, Club Super, Super Sex. Sex. Featuring Ronald Chan. <laughs> wow. Okay, okay. So that's how you guys came to Montreal. That's and then right. you were born and raised there and then ended up going to the top university there as well. McGill. Yeah, yeah that's right. So um, I went to McGill, studied computer science, graduated. After that, stayed in Montreal for another couple of years working as a you know computer programmer, mm. um, analyst type of role. And eventually did my MBA, went to Vancouver, mm-hmm. um, spent a, a year and a bit there, did that exchange program in KO, mm. which was, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but one of my dreams mm. was to live in Japan. I was growing up a, a huge, huge, you know, we call them like otakus. Oh, you're like, an otaku. Yeah, just somebody who just loved playing video games, watching anime, learning about Japanese culture, you know, J-pop language, anything Japan related got me excited. So when I had that opportunity to do an exchange program in Tokyo, I took it, spent a year there, loved it so much and eventually came back to Canada afterwards. Unfortunately, couldn't (laughs) find a job in Tokyo because I couldn't speak Japanese. And Mm. that was back in, I think about 08, you know, the whole world financial crisis happened, no jobs were found anywhere. So came back to Canada to consulting. So, okay. Yeah. So how was that year in Japan? Honestly, it's probably the greatest year of my life. I know. We Um, talked about that before. You were very happy speaking about that year in Japan. Oh, I loved it. It was just my dream as a kid. You know, another thing about Montreal is that we don't have a big Asian Mm. population. I think nowadays it's changed with all the immigrants from China coming in. Mm. But back then, the Asian population was very small. And most Asians were either Vietnamese or Hong Kong, people from Hong Kong coming over. So not many people speak Mandarin, number one. Cantonese. Back then growing up, it was Cantonese if Mm. if you were Chinese. And then the Japanese population was tiny. Tiny. Yeah. So, so tiny. And Japanese don't usually kind of congregate in the same neighborhood, right? Like the Chinatowns all around the world are powerful. Mm -hmm. And even Koreatowns are pretty powerful. But Japanese tend to be more like samurai, ronin. They live on their own. So No Japantown. Exactly. um, Very few Japanese restaurants growing up. So, you know, having this opportunity to go to Japan, you know, Mm. when I was watching all this anime and playing video games was really a dream for me. So going there, living my dream. And not only that, I had the opportunity to 
go to school in Japan, right? Yeah. And, you know, all this anime is always usually about this, you know, teenager or university student. That's the whole anime type of thesis for any anime, like living in Japan as a student. So I got to really experience that, you know, going to a university, also attending classes, not for foreigners that were taught in Japanese because of my mentor professor that was mm. taking care of me. So he invited me to go to all of his Japanese taught courses, marketing courses. Ooh. So I got to really experience, you know, life as a Japanese student. Interesting. And it was so interesting because it's so different from American university or American culture. And I loved it as different and weird as it was. I was like, I'm living my dream. So. And it's like, you know, KO University is one of the greatest private universities, higher education institutions in Japan. So it's a great place to be as well. The school is amazing. The campus is amazing. It's in Minato, which is like, you know, kind of the center of Tokyo. You're very close to the Tokyo Tower. That's right. Not so far from Odaiba as that's, well. That's right. So that's I'm sure right. those were kind of stomping grounds for you as uh, well. Amazing. Odaiba was like my place that I would take dates on. Mm -hmm. um, beautiful. It's like this little, like, I think it's an artificial man-made island, exactly. like entertainment island with like a miniature Statue of Liberty, that Gundam, exactly. that Gundam, Gundam. Um, statue yep. is there, hot springs, beautiful boardwalks to walk around with musicians playing. So it's a great place to go with your friends, take a date out. So, uh, you know, did a little bit of that. You had a lot of date spots. Uh, man, but you can go up to Tokyo Tower. Yes, absolutely. Go to Odaiba. Uh, Tokyo is just amazing. Like anywhere walking about would make me happy. Right. Mm. So love that experience. And, you know, one day I still wish I could somehow be there uh. and to live part of my life there. But, you know, Japan has its own very unique culture as well. So it's kind of a little hard to find what that may be. But mm. Yeah, you mentioned actually before we got on the air that you will be going to Japan again soon. Yeah, uh, I'm going to Osaka uh, next week with my girlfriend and my brother's family. So mm. my brother's family lives in China and his wife also used to live in Japan as well, but she's Chinese, Australian. So she speaks Japanese much better than me. So, mm. you know, going to Japan, our whole family loves going to Japan as a vacation. So you know, having that opportunity to go again and just eating, you know, the world's greatest food. I was going to say, because oh, Osaka is famous for their culture of kuidaore, which basically means just enjoying food, oh, eating man. forever. Food is everything in Osaka. And I can't wait. I haven't <laughs> spent much time in Osaka, oh, like I maybe see. two days, okay. like in my whole time living in Tokyo. So um, now we're going to get some takoyaki. Uh, yes, yeah, so okonomiyaki, okonomiyaki, I think it's from Osaka. So we're super excited. Every single time I go to Japan, it's still my favorite place in the world, I would say. Oh, wow. Yeah, after traveling, living in so many places, I lost count on the number of countries and cities that I've lived in. Right. Um, you know, probably over 10 cities I lived in or uh. maybe over six countries. Tokyo is probably still my favorite. Taipei is up there as well. Definitely, right. but there's just something about something special, something special about, you know, Japanese culture that just really, really just vibes with me. Mm. Right. So what are some of those differences in education and schooling that you noticed while you were there at KO? Oh man, it's crazy. <laughs> um, so when I went to the Japanese classes so not the foreigner classes, right? Mm. Where they spoke English, taught in English, the Japanese marketing class with my mentor, like professor taking care of me. The first thing that I noticed I went in is that the classroom and where the seats and tables, how were they were organized was in a kind of like a circular fashion, okay. like a square. So everybody's facing each other. Right. So you're not facing, facing inward. You're facing inward. That was cool. But the seating was very particular. 
So you have, you know, at the back in the center, the professor who sits there. Oh. And then on his right and on his left are his PhD students. And then on the right and left of theirs is like the master students. On the right of them would be the sinen, the fourth years, and then the inner circles, the third years. So there's already a hierarchy in the class. Even though it's a circle. Yes. That's so, amazing. So basically, you know, it was very, very- As soon as you go in, you can feel you can that feel it, hierarchy. Right. You know, the teacher enters the class, everybody stands up type of thing, sits down. And this was the other thing that I noticed that was so different is when they were speaking and having conversations, trying to engage in conversations, it was kind of like whatever the teacher says, it's final. Like, you know, that's, uh, right. that's the right- thing to say. And if you were, let's say a third year, which was the youngest okay. in the class, anybody could, you know, oppose your thoughts or try to correct you, but you can't have like a third year correcting a fourth year. Right. Right. And so again, this hierarchy was shown very, very clearly in this cast classroom setting. <laughs> cast. That was a good, that was a good slip <laughs> right there. Uh, this cast system. <laughs> right. So what I know from Japanese education and universities, again, you know, I'm a foreigner. It's not like I spent all my years there, but Japanese university is playtime mm. for Japanese students. From my knowledge and correct okay. me if I'm wrong. What I understand is like high school life yes. is extremely hard with all the studying, trying to get your school exams to get into a great school. But well, once you get into that great school, university life is the best time of your life. 100%. It's all about playing, going to these social classes, joining a club type yes. of thing, um, doing circles. everything together. And the exams and the classwork is just simply a joke. It's secondary, exactly. Um, very different from universities in North America, yes. where it's actually the exact opposite. It's totally flipped. Yeah, totally exactly. flipped around. Yeah, and especially at those elite universities. Any of these kind of elite universities like Keio or Waseda, Doshisha, or even like Tokyo University, but especially the private ones, they definitely play a lot. Right. They're infamous for that. I also heard that a lot of them already are guaranteed a job. The interview starts maybe just at the elite universities, but I think they start interviewing in the beginning of their third year or something like that. Mm -hmm. So by like, you know, the third, mid of third year, they already have a job secured, exactly. which means that there's no reason to study any further. So exactly. they just play and it's amazing as a student. But then the other thing about Japan, which I can't do is to live that uh, salary man life. You know, right. like once they start working, I'm not down with that type of lifestyle. So Going I think 40 years in one company. Yeah. You know, doing very, very menial task over time, over time, drinking with your colleagues in boss simply because you have to exactly smoke filled I, rooms. Right. I can't do that, but you're not uh, down for that. No, that's why you're I too think odd. <laughs> I think that's why it's going to be very hard for me to find something in Japan um, oh, because most right. jobs are these big conglomerates and you want to work for those Toyotas or the Nintendos, Dentsu. whatever. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, I couldn't do that. I don't have the Japanese skills. So it would be more of, you know, what can I do as an entrepreneur? But, you know, Japan has its own very unique culture and systems, which might be a little tough to understand. Not impossible. A lot of people do it. Obviously, foreigners can go in. Mm. But um yeah, you know, always appreciate my time there. And what about cracking the tea market in Japan? You know what? When we first started this company, we thought Japan could be one of the core markets we can go into. And then I went to Tokyo a year ago to do more market research. Okay. And what I read online was actually just like three years ago, right before COVID. So actually right before COVID, the tea market, the bubble tea market, mm. right? Not the traditional, you know, matcha. I'm right, talking about right. bubble tea market. It exploded in 2018 to 2020. 
It was so oh, up big until COVID. Okay. up until COVID. And it was so big that there was new articles about the Yakuza actually starting legit bubble tea places because it was such a cash flow cash business. Cow. It was a cash cow business. So wow. um, bubble tea was a huge thing in Japan at one point in time. And then kind of COVID came and it died and nobody survived. And now if you go to Japan, if you go to Tokyo, there's very few bubble tea places around. That's Only some of the um, big, big, big franchises from Taiwan. I think the big one is like Gongsa is there. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. But even in, if you go to Harijuku and I was there last year and you know how busy Harijuku is, mm -hmm. right? It's just flooded of people. There was a brand, I think right in the middle, the most prime location of all of Harijuku. I forget what it was. It was either Xing Fu Tang or Tiger Sugar, one mm. of the pretty big brands. Yes. No customers. Oh. Every really? other shop had customers, you know, selling those crepes, you know, right, the, right, right, like right. everything had customers. So I think the Japanese, they hop onto trends and then yeah. they kind of hop off right. very quickly. And I think they kind of hopped off this bubble tea trend after COVID hit. So, you know, as much as I would love to do a tea shop in Japan, I think that I'll need to do a little more research to right. see how our brand fits in. But right now it's probably a pretty big risk to mm. try to revive, you know, be the brand to revitalize that whole bubble say, tea market. Yeah. Right. You could be at the forefront. There's a lot of risk and reward there, yeah. but right. got to make sure that due diligence is in place. Right. And that gives that. me a great excuse to go back exactly <laughs> and exactly. do that due diligence for months. Every week, due diligence. <laughs> right. <laughs> Tell the investors, you know, come on, I'm I'm just doing research, <laughs> trying to make this work, you know, trying to make like, this happen. You've been in Japan for four years and not even one shop opened yet. <laughs> exactly. It's coming. It's coming. It's not ready yet. The market is not ready yet. What else about Japan? Any other memories from your time there? So I was living in a dormitory in a very good area of Tokyo. I made some really great friends from Europe, just living in Japan, going to school to Keio. After six months when I graduated, I loved Japan so much. I tried to find a job and I tried for six months. I couldn't find anything. So I learned Japanese. I couldn't even get a job teaching English. Wow. Sad. Yeah. Yeah. Your English is not bad. Yeah. It's a um It was funny because Angela told me the year before she was at KO as well. She did the exact same yes. exchange program yes. at KO. She and she was it. telling me how she got paid so much money teaching English. And for you viewers and listeners out there, English is not Angela's first language. <laughs> Back then when she was in Japan, her English was not that strong. It's quite okay now. It's right. quite good now, but this is, we're talking about 15 years ago, right? So right. her English wasn't very good, but she got all these job offers teaching English because she's a pretty Asian girl. Um, but Angela, I, I stop being so in. pretty and Asian <laughs> and a girl. I know I come in. It's not fair. I come in with this, you know, Asian face speaking English. Native quite, English. Native English. And they're like, sorry, there's nothing for you. That's funny. No job. So I couldn't even stay in Japan longer because I needed money. If I could stay in Japan, I'll be an English teacher to stay here. I couldn't even get a job teaching English. So I had to go back home. That's I had this crazy. degree, this new degree that I spent a lot of money doing my MBA. So I had to go back home, face reality. I... Terrible. Could have been a host. Um, you know, to be honest, like I, I, I looked into it, like just to see what the money, what the would market be like. due diligence, right? Exactly. How was your due diligence there? Same How, thing. What do you I think about think, this market? I don't think I would have made it to be honest, because I think it comes into two categories. You're either a Japanese host who speaks Japanese, and you know you're great at flirting and communication, or you're a white dude, yeah, with blonde hair and blue eyes, right. and there's other and then, market. There's and then just you just have to be breathing. <laughs> 
<laughs> and and poor alcohol. Right. Yes. Just no market for, you know, like Chinese born Canadian dudes right. um, living in Japan. And even my dating life was like that too. You know, I was single living in Japan. I thought I was going to kill it. Right. I thought I was going to be I like, no, you're popular, like, I cannot wait. But uh, watch out Japan. <laughs> But, but Japan was really watch out for this too. <laughs> so you're just strolling romantically down Odaiba yeah, yeah. by yourself. Bye, bye, bye. Yeah. Those dates was actually dates by myself or my anime friends. You and, <laughs> you and Gundam. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So didn't have a successful dating life in Tokyo. Maybe, maybe <laughs> due to several factors, but that was, that was, but you know, regardless of that doesn't matter, man. It was just an amazing place. Right. <laughs> So you had to say goodbye to this little chapter of your life and head back to Canada. Head back to Canada. I got a job, you know, um, that's where I, I got an offer from Deloitte as a management consultant. Mm. Um, did the interviews when I was in Japan. I actually got the job offer before I graduated. Nice. Um, negotiated. And I told them that I wanted to stay in Japan to just take some time off. They agreed. But my true intention was to just keep that as a plan B mm. and to stay in Tokyo and find something in Tokyo. But, Interesting. Then, you know, the financial crisis happened and just didn't work out. So I had this plan B that I had to pick up. So went over to Canada. I was in Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada, which is the world's most boringest place, like super boring. Huh. Uh, lots of old people retire in government, okay. uh, government work. So conservative, quiet, yeah, quiet, you know, um, drove back to either Toronto or Montreal every weekend and eventually got a transfer back to Vancouver, which oh, is okay. one of my favorite place in Canada, actually. Oh, so, definitely. Yeah. I love Vancouver, BC. Beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It's very tolerant, open, liberal, multicultural. Great food. Great food. Um, you know, a good amount of Asian population. So, you know, mm. the food is going to be there. The weather is much more favorable, in my opinion, versus a Montreal or Toronto. Oh, for sure. You know, beautiful weather uh, during the summertime, at least. So, you know, I stayed over in Vancouver for another year or so before I headed off to Asia. Okay. Right. So how was that one year in management consulting there? Uh, the typical know. job for elite university graduates who don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. Uh, not <laughs> for me because I, I didn't know what place. I was doing in management <laughs> consulting. And, you know, I... I didn't have a great experience at Deloitte, but it did give me a lot of, you know, hard skills. Um, mm. So I'll always be grateful for that. But I just didn't find the work very meaningful at all. I thought I was just spending too much time trying to perfect a PowerPoint template, you know, just making sure all the boxes are the same size and the same font and just spending too many hours doing that actually rather than providing value, right? So mm. my story of how I got to Asia was while I was in Vancouver during my stint at Deloitte, I loved my Vancouver life. I loved my friends. I loved my apartment. I had a, a new girlfriend there that, you know, I was really into, but I hated my job. And that was the reality. Like I hated it every morning. I woke up in the morning just being like, I hate my job. I hate my job. Mm. I just wanted to go home, you know, and, and carry on with my regular life. But you know, the job was really, really hard on me. Um, exhausting. Exhausting. And I just felt like I provided no value to my clients or to the firm. So mm. I just kind of felt like burnt out, really burnt quickly. out, dead object. Like, why am I here? 
okay. other than a fairly good paycheck. And you know, when you work at a firm like Deloitte, there's a lot of opportunity. So I knew it was great for myself and my career to just keep at it. Don't exactly. give up. Keep that on your resume. Right. But you know, I didn't enjoy it. And one of the reasons why I quit my job was because one day I was walking towards my clients, you know, just early in the morning, trying to get there before eight and a truck, an 18 wheeler almost hit me. Oh yeah. Like, you know, brakes, screeching, basically touching my face, but stopped in time. You know, when they say your life flashes before your eyes, before you die. literally did. Well, it was more like what I thought at that time. I was like, ah, fuck, I wish it hit me so I could go to the hospital and not go to work. Oh, That's what I thought. I was was like, ah, shit. You know, I thought I could take time off. (laughs) And I was like, oh man, like I would rather be injured severely than to go into the office. And I was like, okay, this is probably a calling that I should yeah, find something that's else. not a good sign. Right. right. And right before that, there was this opportunity to come to Asia, to come to Taiwan, to join Rocket Internet. Right. Um, and there's a whole story behind that. Ooh, um, interesting. Yeah. So when I was in Japan, so okay. everything all kind of connects. When I was in Japan at KO, living in this dormitory, and I met a lot of international students, I met a German guy there. His name is Maurizio. And we just, you know, got along and very, very smart guy. And he was interviewing for a consulting role. We did a lot of projects together. And when he graduated his university back in Europe, he got an offer from McKinsey. He joined Mm. McKinsey. I joined Deloitte. And even though he was living in Europe, I was living in Canada. We would just kind of like shit talk about our jobs. Like, you know, late now is like, oh my God, you're still not working. Just like communicate. Which one's worse? Yeah. You know, we're both like, (laughs) oh, we don't really enjoy our jobs that much. And one day I wake up, I get an email and it's from him. And the email, the title was like the greatest opportunity of our lives now, now, now. Oh, And so I read the email, it goes, hi, Ron. And it's this very generic email that was like, join the world's fastest growing company. This is going to be the Amazon of the world. Best opportunity of lives. Quit your job. Join now. Now, type of thing. And I was like, and then send your bank account details to this Nigerian prince. Exactly. So I actually thought it was a spam email, (laughs) right? So I didn't pay any attention to it. Right. Um, The company he was talking about was this company called Rocket Internet, which I thought was like the worst name for a company. What kind of name is that? I was like, what kind of name is that? So didn't do anything about it. But when that truck came and almost hit me, it was just a few days later that he actually calls me and he's like, did you get my email? And I was like, dude, I thought that was so spammy. I actually thought it was spam. He's like, no. And I was like, what's up? He's like, well, just to let you know, I'm in Taiwan right now because he's a white German dude. I was like, what are you doing in Taiwan? He's like, I live here and I'm starting this company, this fashion company in Taiwan. And I already have a hundred employees who are all like models pretty much like people into fashion and I can't speak Chinese I know you're Taiwanese he's like quit your job and come and grow this company with me no and I was like are you serious like what is this he's like dude it's you know he tried to do the whole sales pitch I didn't know if I quite believed it but he showed me videos he's like this is what's going on this is my office in Taiwan we had this great (laughs) office he had this great office in Nehu brand new building oh, really in the science park in the science park brand new building like panoramic windows you know 100 young employees he's like i need you to help me build this company with me in taiwan so he gave me that job offer he's like quit your job and get on a plane tomorrow right he's no like i'll pay you whatever way. you need to get paid to come here to taiwan to do this 
And for me at that time with that, you know, thinking about, I would rather be hit by a truck than right. go into the office anymore. I was like, okay, this is my calling. I want to go back to Asia. So I did. So That's I quit my job, story. quit my job, took that flight. You know, it was probably more like two weeks after, okay, you know, I flew sure. in, flew into Tying Taiwan. Yeah. And started a new life, joined him on. So that company he was building is Allura, okay. which you might've heard today. It's one of the largest online fashion companies. Right. Uh, it's a publicly listed company created by Rocket Internet. And wow. at its time, it was the biggest fashion company across Southeast Asia. Wow. So he built the Taiwan business and I helped him for a few weeks only. Huh. And he actually quit after a few weeks to go really? back to Europe and to go back to McKinsey. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he kind of like, I, came there for him to do this. And literally after weeks, he was like, I got to go back because his wife was back in Europe, newlywed, right? Okay. Um, and I think it was a decision about, you know, family, right? right. Um, you know, McKinsey probably came back to him and probably gave him a really good offer. He's a very smart guy. right? Um, so he decided to go back and he left me with Zalora, no. with, with other people, you know, there are other, other, other people running the company. And then after a few weeks, Food Panda came. So Rocket Internet is the investor of Zalora. Zalora and Food Panda. So Rocket Internet came, hey, you're doing a great job at Zalora, but we have this new thing called Food Panda that we want to be doing. And we want you to join as one of the co-founders of the Food Panda business. And the rest is history. So that's why I started Food Panda here in Taiwan oh, because of this wow. dude that I met in Tokyo. <laughs> this um, German dude in yeah, Tokyo. German dude in Tokyo. And Sending you Nigerian emails. <laughs> Nigerian prince emails. Right. Yeah, I only lost ten thousand dollars, you know, exactly. but I clicked on that link. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Yeah. And then you inherit a fashion company, and then quickly pivot to a food delivery company. Yeah, which was a great decision because for you listeners out there, Zalora at its time was huge. I'm talking about 2012. Okay. 2012 Zalora across Southeast Asia, 2013-14 was the biggest deal. That and Lazada. And for all you listeners out there, Lazada is one of the biggest e-commerce companies like Amazon, Shopee, Lazada. It's, yep. it's basically them too. Those two companies, Zalora, Lazada was the biggest e-commerce technology companies across Southeast Asia. Ah. Um, and Food Panda just started then, but was small and everybody kind of shat on Food Panda. Oh, food delivery. It's so boring, blah, 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 blah. Fashion right. and, you know, uh, commerce is right. where it's at. So us at Food Panda, we started in the same office in that Nehu office. And we had this one little corner where the butt of everybody's jokes. Oh, you know, my really? team was maybe about 10. The Zalora team probably grew to like 150. And wow. we were all like, you know, the butt of everybody's joke. You know, oh, it's the Food Panda guys coming in, you know, our office those space. pandas over there in the right. corner. And, you know, now you fast forward uh, 10, 11 years, <laughs> Food Panda is a giant. Yes. Right. You know, far, far exceeding what Zalora ever did. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, we kind of came out and uh, slowly built this business into what it is. Well, you know, I left after four years, but it's funny how things, you know, kind of progress. That's crazy. Right? The Zalora Taiwan office actually shut down. I'll be like it kind of was right. gone okay. um, after like a year and a half. But us at Food Panda, even though we had this small little space, we still survived like a cockroach. And eventually oh. we had to get our own office because, you know, they had to give up the lease. We got our own office and, you know, grew Food Panda Taiwan, you know, eventually into what it is today. So, um, you crazy. know, it was, it was a great because people are like, why didn't you want to stay at Zalora? Right. Like, 
fashion, models, you know, big company, much more funding. But I wanted to kind of be the number one guy and start something okay. from scratch. So rather than being one of three managing directors okay. of Solora Taiwan, I wanted to be, you know, the the top guy. Right, right, right. Food Panda Taiwan. I can do it. I right. want to do something. Yeah. Oh, wow. So yeah. For those who don't know, Rocket Internet, the company model is known as a startup studio or venture builder. They basically just create startups, copy them. Copy them. They're famous for that as well. They right. have a reputation for, I think Zappos, another uh, Taiwanese company, right? With Tony She, Zappos, but they did like a- Shoes. Zapata or, or something. That's Zalora. Oh, Ash. that is Zalora. That's why we even, Rock and Internet even try to copy the name, the whole color scheme background. So Zappos was the model in the US. Zalora. Yes, that were like, okay. So Rock and Internet, their bread and butter was taking American companies that did really well, technology e-commerce companies mm -hmm. and copying them to the T and deploying them in other regions of the world. And right. one of the primary focuses was emerging markets like Southeast Asia, hence why I came over. Now, Taiwan's not part of Southeast Asia, but it was a Taiwan story of yeah. Taiwan play as well. So that was the model Zappos, that shoe company created by Tony did really well. And Rock and Internet, the CEO of the company was like, we can do this across Europe. We could do this across oh. Asia. Asia. Wow. So they created Zalora and, you know, Amazon was the other big growing company where we could do this same Amazon model marketplace. And that's where Lazada came about. Foodpanda mm. was because of a company called Grubhub. Oh, um, in the US, in the New York. Bite off of Grubhub. A bite out of Grubhub, seamless. So they took that and we copied it in Southeast Asia and other countries across the world, Taiwan and, and so many other countries as well. Oh, wow. Um, now, of course, the model is always tweaked a little bit. Right. So we went ahead and tweaked the model to make it work for our local countries. You know, that was our responsibilities as, you know, CEOs and co-founders of our local market to take, you know, what we see and to make it work in our local country. That's amazing. So how much direction do you get from the head office, which is located in Berlin, Germany, right? Yeah. Yeah. Of so Rocket Internet. Rocket Internet's based in Berlin, but the Food Panda story was a little different because it was really just starting. So we actually centralized everything in Singapore at the very beginning. Okay. So we had our programming team in Singapore and we had our centralized marketing team, which really didn't do much. So what really Rocket Internet does for you is try to centralize some sort of operations, which is usually tech, which is the big one. Mm -hmm. So everybody's operating off the same website or eventually app or Food Panda in every market. So I don't have to hire any engineers and do programs. That's all out of Singapore. All out of Singapore. Initially, Singapore eventually moved to Berlin. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second thing I didn't have to worry about as you know, a co-founder of Taiwan was funding. You know, And that's mm -hmm. a really big, important part of an entrepreneur's journey. Yeah, that takes so much off your shoulders. So you can really focus on operations. Correct. And it's complete execution operations. Wow. The website is done. The funding is there. So the you know- tech is all there. You have a paycheck to hire people, you know, well, not paycheck, but you get funding every month sure. to pay your payroll. And for you, it's all about execution, execution, build it. And you rely on your own local marketing team, your local sales team, customer service team, but you don't have to worry about your engineering team. That's amazing. So that's how the model rolled out. That's how Rock and Internet traditionally did, you know, their businesses when they did this Laura, Lazada, and Food Panda model. Okay. Right. But this one was based in Singapore. Singapore. In terms of the tech. Yeah. And then eventually everything was moved over. When Food Panda got big enough, they were like, wow, this could be a big thing. Mm. Um, they took it, centralized everything in Berlin, and they got a new German or European CEO, COO, global CEO, COO, CMO. Okay. Um, to overlook the, the whole operation globally. 
so they can sell it later. Yeah, which they eventually did. Hero. Yeah, which right. they eventually did. I think back in 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Right. So, what was your original team like oh, in this little corner of this loved office? It. Uh, I love that team so much. <laughs> Still remember every single one of them. Oh, what we did is, so I had a kind of like a co-founder, but not in title, but he basically came from Zalora as well. He was okay. working in Zalora, and back then when I came to Taiwan, I couldn't speak almost any Mandarin. It was mm. really, really poor. And this guy, his name is Sam. And Sam was Taiwanese born, but uh, went to the U.S. I think when he was 16, speaks absolute fluent English and Mandarin, like 100%. Native okay, at, at true both. bilingual. True, true, true it's bilingual. not common to be truly bilingual. Truly bilingual. Okay. So I pulled him over from Zalora to help me a food panda because I couldn't speak any Mandarin back then. And we took five of the best interns from Zalora. Zalora had just their strategy in the Taiwan office was to just hire lots and lots of interns because they're cheaper. Right, really right, cheap right, labor. right. And, and it's pick all, the cream of the crop off the top. We picked the cream of the crop, okay. which I believe is the cream of the crop. And we picked them. So our initial team was me and Sam and just purely interns. Wow. Um, all of them went to pretty much the same school. Uh, one of the top schools, Chengqi. I can't say in Mandarin. My Mandarin is oh, terrible. Okay. But one Chung, of the yeah. Chi University, yeah. we got a bunch of them and we just started you know, from day one, just trying to make this model work. And eventually we started to hire more full-time staff as we started to scale a little up. But those interns were fantastic. They did everything the they Taiwanese were, way. Yeah, super smart. We had a great yeah, team dynamic. Uh, yeah. That's it. Thank Genta, you. Genta, yeah, Genta, it's a great right? school. Yeah. Great school, great team dynamic. They really put their hearts into it. And I still keep in contact. Their business with students are really good. They're a great MBA, EMBA program. Amazing. Just like amazing students. I've had some great interns from Jenda as well, actually. And now they're doing great things with their lives, those interns, you know, starting at Fupen and they eventually you know, graduated and joined other great companies. Some of the initial first employees that I hired, I think one of our first full time, her name is Catherine. She is Taiwanese, went to school in the U.S., worked for a couple of years in a U.S. company, came to Taiwan, hired her as one of my first salespeople. She eventually became like, you know, my right hand woman, right hand right. man, woman, right, uh, right. was kind of like the GM of Fupan at Taiwan. And now she's like the you know country GM CEO of this huge Taiwanese international company has like 800 employees. I think it's, wow. I forget the name. I think task us, but you know, she's now doing that. Another guy that I hired, Stanley, he was again, Taiwanese, went to school in Vancouver, graduated, did military service, first job, food panda, being a sales guy, knocking on doors, super talented guy. And now you became one of the co-founders of Lala Move and Ooh. then the Taiwan GM of Shopline, which is a big commerce company, like again, 500 something plus employees. Now I think he's like the GM of Shopback, which is, you know, mm. they raised like billions of dollars. Right. So some of these people that came with me from the very beginning have become very, very successful, wow. you know, and a part of it, you know, I would like to say a part of it is because of those food panda days. For sure. Growing it from, from just the, hustling as yeah. cockroaches in the corner. Right. Cockroaches being shat on people making fun of us. And then eventually in Taiwan, and I don't know if people know, but Taiwan's food panda business is the biggest food panda business. And even when it comes of all to, of food pandas of all of food panda around Asia, I think, I think even maybe the world. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's a huge business for the food panda business and food delivery in Taiwan really, really exploded. Uber Eats, the Taiwan business for Uber Eats, I think is number four in the world for the Uber Eats business. Oh, so wow. Taiwan is a huge food delivery business. It's from the interns that I hired, plus these guys that I mentioned in the corner of the office is Alora starting it all up. Right. Oh man. 
Japan. So what was that food delivery landscape like at that time? Who were the incumbents there? Uh, no, no, nobody. That's the thing. So we wow, grew you guys it, uh, are breaking into this market. Yeah. So food delivery was always a thing in Taiwan, but for more of a lunchtime, like bian dang, yeah. So you get the flyers, you call, you dial that phone number, and they they deliver. And There's they no just, technology. A guy on a scooter would come. Correct. So that has always been around in Taiwan. Right. That market still exists, and it's a big market in Taiwan. Now there has been a lot of people who tried to do the whole technology element, okay. developing a website, connecting Scaling as a it. platform. Yes, the platform play, right? The aggregator, right. and there has been numerous people, even big companies, trying to get. I think Cathay also tried getting into it, failed. I can't remember, but there has been a history of. Companies Attempts. trying to right. do the whole aggregator technology side and all failing. And I even remember meeting the CEO and founder of EasyTable, um, okay. Alex. And EasyTable is an online ordering platform, yes. which is huge today. Right. When I met him back in 2012, saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this thing called Food Pen. We're going to do food delivery. He's like, He's just Dude, shaking his head. good luck. He's like, if you ever make it, you'll be pretty famous. Because like, he knows how hard it is. Because he's <laughs> right. in the, the, the booking restaurant game. So exactly. he knows how hard it is. So it was really hard to break into, incredibly hard to break into. But you know, after I think a year and a half, things started to really take off. You know, the first year and a half was a struggle. So what was that year and a half like? Because you said your first people were kind of salespeople, right? right? So they were knocking on doors, basically trying to just convert these little restaurants. Or what was the strategy exactly? That was exactly it. So it was myself and all of my team just knocking on doors. Our first strategy is like eat at the restaurant and talk to the, the Laoban owner yeah. and to see if we he'll sign Yang. up. You know, getting signing on restaurants was difficult, but not the most difficult part. I think the the main thing, the takeaway was more of what was really, you know, the model. Do we have the right model and do we have you know the right value adds for everybody in the ecosystem? What people don't know is when Fupan has started here in, in Southeast Asia and even in Taiwan, the model is completely different than today. Mm. It wasn't a delivery company. It was a pure Pintai, uh, uh, a platform, platform play. Yeah. You would basically connect restaurants with customers through a website and the restaurants would do the delivery itself. Oh, so Fupan's first iteration started. for the first year or so was like no delivery guys, not even a single one. And you okay. would just basically work with restaurants that had its own delivery service. And we tried that for like nine months or whatever, 12 months or so. And it just never worked, no matter how hard we tried, no matter how many restaurants we got on a platform. Huh. At one point in time, I think we had like 800 restaurants on a platform and almost no customers on our website, no, no users. Right. right. So it was a struggle trying to understand why, because other countries around the world were being successful. You know, we have these weekly Food Panda co-founder calls and other countries are reporting, oh, my numbers and I'm here in Taiwan, just being, oh, I can't yeah. get any customers in. You know, I have all these restaurants and some of them are pretty famous, right? Like, you know, we had like the biggest Taiwanese chain, a fried chicken chain. Okay, we had, you know, TKK. The, right. Yeah, Dingguagua, you yeah, got it, yeah, you know. Yeah, and so, yeah, you know, yeah. we had them on board. We had like, you know, we had so many restaurants on board and nobody was coming. And it took us a while too long to realize that we need to change something locally in this market. So we decided to hire our first delivery guy and sign up a restaurant that didn't have its own delivery service back then. And those were Western restaurants typically didn't do this biendang, like yes, lunchtime delivery. right, the bento, you, bien dang. Western restaurants did not provide the of service. Course. They were like, hey, we can deliver 
for you through our website with our delivery guy. And that's what it clicked. And when that clicked, the first day that we launched like our first set Western restaurants, business just took off and never looked back from then. Oh, and that's we scaled that model tremendously. We actually had to hide this model from our headquarters because they're like, this is not the model we want. We're not a delivery company. We'll never be able to scale. Like you need to keep it as a platform play. You should be like a Goda, you know, like wow. where you just have a technology company, you sign on, you know, restaurants and then let- And what was the revenue model? Basically just taking take a, little a small chunk, little chunk. transaction fee. Exactly. But with the delivery model, it's a completely different model. You're actually yeah. like you're you're managing a logistics You're creating fleet, a logistic, exactly. Fleet, which is fleet. so many people with a lot of headaches and operational for headaches, sure, for you know, sure. timings and pickups. And so it was very different. We hit it for like, like six months or even a year. Really? Um, but the numbers were growing and eventually other countries started to follow suit, you know, like, Hey, let's just do our own delivery. You know, all of us co-founders without telling the like, Germany, we're like, you know, yeah. we gotta do it this way. Like there's no infrastructure in Asia to rely on restaurants to do it. We all did it eventually when they found out, Germany found out they, they would be pissed off. They'll tell us to stop. They'll threaten us not to fight funding, right. all of this stuff. But we knew that it was the right thing to do. So we did the it. The numbers spoke for themselves. Yeah. So we just kind of, you know, like it was the finances of the business were really mismanaged for rocket internet. So we just kind of like, they're going to send us this amount of money. Let's pretend we're going to spend this amount of marketing, but actually that goes to our delivery. Oh, plate. interesting. But the yeah, numbers yeah, yeah, yeah. were like, we were growing so fast. So they right, weren't asking questions. Right. So they're just like, okay. And eventually it got to a point where they're like, okay, you guys are kind of right. Like this yeah. is, so now Food Panda Globally, as you know, it's a delivery company, right? With its fleet. But it took years to get to that <laughs> until crazy. headquarters are like, okay, yeah. So I guess this is, this is what we should do. So how many years in again, when you hired your first delivery? Um, I think it was anywhere between nine months to like a year and three months. Like it was a long time because we tried playing with the whole, like let's follow what Singapore back okay. then is telling us, like pure platform play, pure platform right, right, play. Right, 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 right. Until we're just like, we got to try something else. Okay. Yeah. We just first tried it. You know, yeah, we yeah, didn't go yeah. all in. We're just like, we need to try it because- we won't survive this way. The numbers aren't showing. And every single month we're at risk of being shut down. Right. Where our headquarters would be like, you know, what's the point of funding Taiwan when another country across the world is doing so much better and their numbers are growing. We can use that money. So every month we were always at risk. And at one point I was like, we're not going to continue. Like for sure one day they're just going to close yeah, us off. Let's, let's try it. So yeah, we tried exactly. it and then the rest is history. So was Taiwan the first to try that? Um, Taiwan, Singapore, Malaysia were the first countries to try this, right? So us three countries were really tight. The co-founders were really tight. Okay. Trying, like, you know, trying these things together. Right. Um, getting on calls. Yeah, getting on calls without, you know, other counterparts. Right, um, right, right. We were really, really tight. And yeah, and those are probably the best performing countries today, if you think about it. That's right. amazing. Right. So by the time you left, what did that look like? Uh, when I left after four years, people always ask me why I left, mm. uh, you know, because Food Panda is so big today and I would be so much richer today if I didn't leave, no doubt about oh, it. Okay. Um, I left for a few reasons. And I think the biggest reason is I think ambition got to me, you know, at that time by the four year mark of Food Panda, it was big. Yeah. You know, it got big. It was getting very famous. We had no competitors. Uber Eats didn't come into the scene yet. Our numbers were just growing just so fast, right. like so fast. And I was like, I did it. You know, we won. I did my job, you know, and I was very, very proud of what I did. And I thought, what's next? 
If oh. I can do this, what else can I do? I have this ability and I was poached by a company, which is Happy Fresh, oh, which was like, um, so actually even before they came, I was thinking about doing my own grocery delivery startup because okay. I had all of the basis. Yep. You know, I was like, I can do this. I understand the market. Right. I understand the market. I understand exactly what Samisa done. I know how to make this successful, similar model. Right. 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 And when I was thinking about leaving Food Panda to do it on my own, so I'll be the number one guy, yep, right? Yeah, type yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. More equity. Right. Um, Happy Fresh approached me, which was founded by a bunch of ex rocket internet guys that some oh, of them I already knew. Okay. Right. From my Food Panda days and Zalora days, like I was, I know you guys. You know, we partied together. Yeah. And they're like a whole bunch of them. They're like Ron, man. Like, don't fight us. Join us. Join us. Like, we'll do it together. And eventually, I did. You know, I joined them wow. rather than doing it on our own. You know, but we're like, we'll even do better than Rocket Internet. You know, we'll have a great company culture. At that time, Happy Fresh was going to raise its um, Series A round, which is the largest Series A round for any startup in the history of Southeast Asia. Oh, back really? Then. Back then. So it was okay. like a big deal, you know, with a super veteran Rocket Internet guys. So I know their track record. I worked with them in some capacity before. And after four years, our equity structure for Rocket Internet was a four-year vesting, which means that after four years, you got all of your shares. Mm -hmm. So working extra didn't really mean much other than salary. And I was like, I want more. I yeah. was like, I want yeah, more. Yeah, What's yeah. my next thing? And the opportunity to go to Southeast Asia was super interesting to me. You know, flying to Malaysia and Singapore and all these countries during my time at Food Panda to you know, support the other guys' meetings. And I was like, Southeast Asia is growing. It's vibrant. Mm -hmm. Taiwan, I was like, I kind of know it. I've kind of done it. And I was like, if there's an opportunity to do this in Southeast Asia, this new emerging market, you sounds know. Sounds exciting. Sounds exciting. So I, I took that offer and I joined Happy Fresh. So that's, that's Where how Where was I their headquarters? Indonesia. In Indonesia. In, in, in Indonesia. Jakarta. So that's where I spent a lot of my time in Jakarta. Our uh, CTO was there. The story was there. You know, Indonesia, the largest market across Southeast Asia, growing young demographic of customers, yeah. internet penetration. So it's a huge country too. Yeah. So we decided to do it in Indonesia. So I spent a significant amount of my time in Indonesia. Um, but what year also, was this? 2016, I believe. Okay. 2016, Happy Fresh for five years. A split time between Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, and Thailand, and even a little bit in the Philippines as well. Oh, really? Right. Okay. So that's, you know, that was another five years of a roller coaster ride. Um, <laughs> never easy doing a startup, right? Never easy. But, but you couldn't come in as number one. So what was your role? Uh, so my role initially was actually similar to Fupan. I was the managing director of Taiwan business. So the thought was, well, with a couple of other countries, we want to do a Southeast Asian play plus Taiwan. Mm. We'll get it up and started. Now with every startup, Happy Fresh included, and still is, things didn't work out in Taiwan. Right. And that was actually pretty sad because I brought in so much of my Food Panda team oh. to Happy Fresh to get it started in Taiwan. Right. But I knew I was going to be spending a lot of time with headquarters in Jakarta. Indonesia, in Jakarta. Okay. So it was still appealing to me. Right. Oh. Um, plus, I had much more equity and all of this stuff. So we were in Taiwan for a very short amount of time when we realized it wasn't going to work. I think it was maybe a year, maybe less, maybe more. Uh, but Around that time, we were just like, it's not going to work here. So uh, this is a grocery, grocery. delivery platform, exactly a grocery. Exactly like Food Panda, but replace restaurants with grocery stores okay. like Ding Hao and Trianlian, like uh, yep. PX Mart, just the same model. You order on an app, some guy goes to the store, picks it up for you and sends the groceries home in an hour or okay. two or whatever. 
So, you know, the model didn't work in Taiwan. And not only that, funding dried up as well mm. from a headquarters perspective. They had to make cuts and Taiwan was one of the obvious cuts. Okay. So, and then I kind of flew over the board, kind of uh, replaced the then CEO and COO. And they elected me and somebody else to be the new CEO and new COO of the company. Of the entire company the based, entire out, company of based out of Jakarta. Yeah. So I was uh, elected as the group COO. Okay. Um, and Guillaume, who was our operations vice president, was elected to be CEO. And uh, we worked together for you know, five years in total to make Happy Fresh into you know one of the biggest grocery delivery companies across Southeast Asia. Wow. Yeah. And, and ups and downs for that company. Lots yeah. of ups and downs. You know, we almost died several times. I've already left. It's been about maybe two or three years since I've left. Right now, like they're kind of, I think, in the dying. Another down, right? Another down. Yeah. But, you know, they're at its high just like two years ago. You know, they raised oh, a $65 million dollar round. Wow. Um, and then now it's kind of on its down and hopefully it'll be back on its up. And I wish right. the best for it. Yeah, you know. I think they recently exited... Malaysia and Thailand. They recently exited Malaysia, Thailand. Indonesia is still going. It was always the biggest market for Happy Fresh. Okay. It was always by far the biggest market with the majority of the revenues coming in there, majority of the team coming in there. Did they mostly focus on Jakarta? Because Jakarta itself is huge. Huge, yeah. And Indonesia is enormous right, country. So right, right. So logistically, that sounds it was difficult. Very, very difficult. So a lot of the efforts were on Jakarta. And I'm not too sure where they are now, if it's more of, you know, pan Indonesia or is it still Jakarta? Card, I'm not sure because right. I've been away from the company for a few years now. So, but you know, I'm just happy that they're still around. Right. Um, and, you know, hopefully they can get through this hard period of time. They're not the only tech company, tech startup to not do well now. Yeah. Like Smile Direct, I just read on the news, Smile Direct Club, huge company that does the Invisalign braces. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, they're done. They, they decided Ooh, to close they closed the, shop. They closed shop really? and that was a $9 billion company that IPO. I know, I saw them everywhere yeah. a couple of years ago. Like, but WeWork is finally, like they just almost all- I mean, funding is just so dry right now. So bad. Um, There's the, no money in the world. <laughs> it's it's a terrible time. So yeah. all startups right now is about like survival mode. How do we just get through these tough times? And Happy Fresh you know, has to get through the tough times. And I'm sure they will. The team there, I'm confident, can get through it. We've been through some really tough times together and still some of the core guys. Most huh. of the core guys out there are still there. And I'm sure they will be able to get through this tough time. What were some of those biggest difficulties, biggest challenges in your experience there? Some things that stick out in your memory? I think when it comes to a startup, the biggest challenge is always, it's always going to be about the money. It's yeah. always going to be about, do you have money? Because most startups operate with losses for years. And as you lose money, you lose cash and how much cash do you have? So we had so many, so many instances where we're like, we're down to our last X amount. Like we can't pay salaries, you know, after a few, whatever days, weeks. Right. And it's panic mode. Yeah. Like, hundreds of people, people are going to be losing their jobs, including yourself. Like, what do we do? And those were always the stressful times. And those times always came about. I think for most startups, I would say the majority of startups always run into this, like, oh my God, like yeah, we're going to die. Crunch. Yeah. Like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to get more capital? Do we need to cut, you know, staff? Do we need to rearrange the business, restructure, exactly. go for funding? Who can we call? Um, and me being there for five years, like it seemed to me like every six months, it was almost that case, right? right? It was 
constant. That's stressful. Yeah, constant trying to understand like how we're going to get more funding. How do we keep what we have and continue the momentum? So that's always, always stressful for the majority of startups. Not mm. all would be like that. But um, I think that's the critical understanding where cash is going to come from. How are you going to fund this for the next months? As long as you can, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, right. Extend that runway as long as you can, That's right? exactly it, Yeah. Right? And before it was a lot easier when times are good. Exactly. It's much easier to find funding, but now times are tough. So it's even tougher and it's- Yeah, yeah and a lot of that is luck, right? Because it's cyclical, right? So if you're on that cycle, on that wave, almost anything gets funded, right? And the yeah. money is just flowing, right? Right, right. But when it's dry, it's dry for everyone. It's dry and it, sometimes it's a lot of luck, you know, meeting the exactly. right person who is just going to- help you out or bail you out and you don't get lucky every time. Yeah, right. right? So exactly. a lot of it is, you know, you got to do it yourself. You, know, you got to try your hardest, but sometimes it does come to like that lucky meeting. Exactly. Right. So. So what about Thailand? How was that market? Thailand was, I, I thought was a decent market for Happy Fresh in terms of outside of Happy Fresh. I love Thailand as a market itself. I as think a country. As, as a, yeah, as a country, vibrant, so much culture. Yeah. Um, great food exciting. I love going there. I don't know if I would start a business there myself, but I do think it is some place that I would just love to kind of chill, mm. enjoy myself, but finding a business opportunity, I think could be challenging for some, a bunch of reasons. One of them is, is that I do think that there is a lot of great ideas that's already been tried in Thailand. Thailand has always been a pretty open market in Southeast Asia for mm -hmm. the last couple of decades. There is a huge population of foreigners mm -hmm. um, that try things. Yeah, exactly. So you see tons of Italian restaurants, German restaurants. You see a tons of startups. You see a bunch of you know white dudes trying stuff. I think cannabis shops. Yes, all over the place right now. Actually, one of our Happy Fresh original guys was well, very Thailand. happy and fresh. Yes, and now he's doing another happy and fresh company, which is a cannabis company. Oh, um, interesting. In, in Thailand, so also I, I, a tech-based one. I don't know how much tech is okay. involved, but definitely a startup revolving around cannabis. So somebody is doing that from our Happy Fresh team, the, Ooh, the OG Happy Fresh team. So Thailand again, love the place. I just don't know if there will be an opportunity for me. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then there was also Malaysia. So KL, Kuala Lumpur, I'm guessing. Yes. Kuala Lumpur. I think Kuala Lumpur, I wouldn't be as bullish as other parts of Southeast Asia. I think Kuala Lumpur, you know, Malaysia is number one population is not that big in Malaysia. Number two, it's kind of like that economy that kind of grew for a long time. And then now it's very stagnant for the last decade or so. Right. So the limits of its economy, plus you have two very distinct group of customers, which are Chinese Malaysians and local Malays. So understanding who to cater to might be a little difficult. They operate very, very differently. Culturally, mm. they're very different. So you're dealing with almost like two different cultures. So I would say it's not as exciting and it's not like it's a bad market, but I think it might not be as exciting as some of the more emerging markets. Like I, I think see. Philippines could be a great market. Vietnam, I think it could be a fantastic market. No, Vietnam is on fire right now. On fire. There's a lot of uh, Taiwanese investment as well. Yeah. 
yeah, Taiwanese, Korean, Japanese exactly. investment in Vietnam. I think that's probably my most, the market I'm most bullish about. Exactly. I think Vietnam. I think it's the most interesting right now. Most interesting. For sure. I think it's going to do phenomenally well. Um, yeah, Foxconn has a huge, huge. Oh, yeah. Right. Like you just see it every single time. Um, I go to Vietnam once a year. Every time I come back, it's just something new going on. And the vibe of the city is very, very different from other parts of Southeast Asia. And Vietnam has this very vibe like the old days of Shanghai. Yeah. Like people are You're talking about Saigon. Saigon. Or, but yeah. even Hanoi is still very vibrant. Even other parts I've been to like, you know, Nha Trang, Da Nang. The people yes. there are very, very excited, very young, very entrepreneurial. So you'll always see a Vietnamese side hustling. They yeah. don't settle. But I think in other parts of Southeast Asia, a lot of other countries, they settle. Yeah. Right. They're yeah. okay with their office job getting paid a certain amount. But if you remember the old days of China, yeah. like nobody was settling. Exactly. Everybody was just trying their hardest to just get to the top. That's the vibe I get in Vietnam. So that's I'm very interesting, Polish. right? Because they're both like ex communist countries. Right. So I think culture has to do a very big thing about, you know, the rise of that country. It's that hunger too, the right? Hunger. The hunger. Right. You have to have that hunger. You have to kind of be trapped a little bit to want to break those traps, right? Right. For decades, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, being trapped. And now, you know, Vietnam, I think, really opened up about, you know, a decade ago, only 10 years ago. And all of that, they'd broken from the chains. Now they're free and, you know, they really want to go hard. So amazing place. One of my favorite places in the world. Me too. Right. The food is amazing. Oh, probably my top cuisine in the world. I one love. Or, one of two pho. Exactly. Oh, Goddamn. I know. It's very subtle, but like those herbs are perfect. I know. I used to do a little pho blog back in Montreal. That's oh, that's it. how. Yeah, that's how much I love it. Sure. <laughs> I have been to restaurants <laughs> called like pho, pho shizzle, uh, you know. Um, Pardon our puns here, right. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you went to Da Nang. I've also been to Da Nang. Did you hop over to Hoi An? Man, loved it. Probably, oh, dude. Probably like top three favorite cities. I know. In Asia, it's right? tiny too. Beautiful. It's so small, but it's a UNESCO World Heritage yeah. Site. It's so beautiful. It's so quaint. Couldn't believe my eyes when I was there because I didn't I actually know. know anything about it. It's like very it. colonial. Right. Perfect date spot. Like, it's so beautiful. It's right. so romantic. It's like going back in time. Yeah. You know, I, I wish I invested more in Vietnam back mm. in the day. But, um, you know, I still think that there's a bright future. Yeah. You know, 100%. Right. So you mentioned the Philippines as well. So my last guest is from the Philippines. I have a lot of good friends from there as well. So how was Manila? You said you had a small stint in the Philippines. Yeah. So we had Happy Fresh in the Philippines for about the same amount of time as, as Taiwan, not long, less than a year. Um, so I used to go to the Philippines a lot. Plus I have property there. So I go to the Philippines. I used to go quite a bit. Mm. And um, I would say initially 10 years ago, the Philippines really, really impressed me when I first arrived. And I have a, a story there in the Philippines. Like I was traveling around Southeast Asia when I first, you know, 10 years ago, going to places like Vietnam, Indonesia, Cambodia, you know, really seeing the emerging markets. And Philippines was one of the last places I went to. And Vietnam, again, 10 years ago, looks nothing. Ho Chi Minh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, <laughs> yeah, nothing like it did sure. today. There was it's no like China malls. again, yeah, just exploding. Exploded and it was like no concrete floors. It was still like dirt roads. Like 
And my brother lived in Cambodia, Phnom Penh. So I was there and it's, you know, again, it was very different 12 years ago today. And Indonesia, the same thing. So Philippines, I was expecting something along the same lines, like dirt roads and nothing really organized, no infrastructure. But surprisingly, when I arrived in the Philippines, there was a lot of sky rise towers in yeah. Makati and uh, BGC. BGC. Exactly. So the story that I have there is, it's a pretty funny story where I was going there for a boys trip with my buddies from Vancouver. Vancouver, and we just wanted to go to the Philippines to explore. So it's my first time arriving and I arrived super late at night at like 2 a.m. red eye flight. I arrive, I check into the Airbnb, which is in this tower, like this 80 story thing. So it's called the Gremacy. It's still around like 80 floors. Like wow, that's, that's huge. Insane. And this, I'm staying in this little Airbnb studio. My buddies <laughs> are out partying, you know, they're partying. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to bed. But I was like, I'm very impressed with this building and the surrounding area. This is in BGC, like in the middle. I think it's Makati. Okay. In Makati. In Makati. Yeah. So I go to bed and then like five in the morning, I wake up because you know somebody's knocking on the door. It's my buddies, right? They bring over a couple of Filipino girls over to continue the after party. Right. Right. So, you know, I wake up. Sexy sex or <laughs> city sex. Or what is the name of that club? Club sexy sex. Okay. So, you know, these girls come in, they're like, oh, nice apartment. I was again. Like, yeah. And then at that time when we're just like, you know, chatting, the sun starts to rise and we have a nice balcony. Okay. Right? And I'm looking over, I'm like, this city is, it looks like Hong Kong or Singapore. Yeah. I couldn't believe my eyes of how developed Manila was. Yes. And I, I couldn't believe it. And then, you know, these local Filipino girls are asking what we do. We're just chatting. I've always you know, dabbled in real estate in the past. You know, my, my mom does real estate. Oh. So I was just asking like, ah, oh, you know, like, you know, how much would it be to live in a place like this in this apartment? And they were like, oh, it's so expensive. So unaffordable, expensive. And right. they threw a number back then. And when I was like, you did a little calculation. You're like, I was like, what? But I was like, what do they know? Right. Right. Like, they're right, not right, realtors. Right, right, right. They're just young girls. Right. We met at a club. So anyways, so the sun goes up and decide to just walk around the city and go get breakfast, oh. you know, go one of the malls. And there's this really nice mall just across the street, very close called the Greenbelt in Manila. Okay. Beautiful outdoor indoor mall with like Louis Vuitton and Chanel and all those things. So mm -hmm. it's, it's high end, high end, still beautiful today after 12 Strip years. Strip clubs inside. <laughs> That's Montreal. Oh, uh, Montreal. Manila, sorry, sorry, right? sorry. So we go to this mall and, you know, walking there, I'm just impressed at how clean it is. Like mm. the roads, the infrastructure, the buildings. I was like, that building's got to be 50 stories. This one, I couldn't believe my eyes. So we go into this mall and I want to buy a t-shirt at Topshop, this okay. fashion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm a very frugal guy though. So I go into this Topshop and the, the girls are with me. I see a t-shirt. I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, I don't want to pay 10 bucks USD for a t-shirt. Right. I'm like, I'm in the middle. I don't want to pay more. I thought it would be cheaper. Right, right, right. And right. then there's like this escalator that goes to the second floor. And, you know, we go to the second floor thinking there's more clothes, but it's actually the sales center for the Ayala group of all these condos. And I was like, oh, well, you know, while I'm here, I might as well just inquire about how much it is to buy one of these properties. Right, 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 right. So see. I talked to the agent, I'm talking to him and we're having this, my buddies and these three girls, they decide to just, oh, we'll look for you somewhere else. You know, okay. just message us when we're done. And, you know, after like a few hours and running some numbers, like, you know, on my phone, I went to the agent. I was like, okay, you know, good. I'll take four. Here, I'll, I'll take four condos. No way. Right. So because the price was so cheap back then. Oh, it my was so cheap. Goodness. I was. I couldn't believe because you know Singapore and Hong Kong and Taiwan, all these expensive prices for real estate. Of and what course. I see, and I was like, this is still the beginning. I was very, very bullish on the Philippines. You know, I was like fastest growing GDP growth of all of Southeast Asia. Government changing to the, everything was trending towards the right direction. Yes. 
So I come back downstairs, you know, and they're at the food court. They're like, oh, how was it? I was like, oh, I just bought four condos. And these girls are local. Filipino yeah, Filipinos. Girls, very, very local. They were like, their eyes open. They're like, and this is the most prominent expensive properties in, in, Makati. in Makati, right? Like the group, it's the biggest publicly listed company. Okay, so luxury from. condos. Luxury condos. And they had their eyes open up and they're like, what's your name? And they try to, <laughs> they try to Wikipedia because they thought I was like some sort of a tech billionaire, you know, but it was just so cheap, you know? Right. So uh, that's you my didn't story. even want a Topshop t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, right. It was right. too expensive. Right. And they were just like, oh my God. And that's how I got into Manila. So I bought those properties and I was going back and forth. <laughs> that's but it, amazing. the thing is though, you know, I just went back to Manila last year and it didn't change actually too much from 10, 12 years. There wasn't much progression over the last 12 years. And I think the Philippines over the last 10 years. So, you know, the reason why I tell you the story, I think 12 years ago was extremely exciting, vibrant. Now, fast forward 10 years, not much has happened to that country. I think it it actually regressed a little bit, if Mm. anything, you know, uh, that speed. I don't follow the politics very closely, but you know, there's obviously a lot of politics involved. Yes. Um, you know, COVID just destroyed, you know, the country, yes, one of the worst exactly. hit countries in the world for yep. COVID mismanaged and everything kind of went backwards. Yeah. Um, so today, you know, I wouldn't be, I'm not too excited about the Philippines. You know, okay. I have those properties there that, you know, the value didn't go up nearly as much as I thought. So that's kind of the situation. So you still have those four. I still have those four, but you know, the returns haven't been great because COVID it was empty for like years. What is the percent? Initially, it was fantastic in terms of yield, rental yeah, yields. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Initially, it was fantastic. Maybe something like 15, 20% rental oh, yield. Oh, that's huge. Initially. That's really high. Okay. Initially. Then you have COVID that hit and those apartments were empty for like almost three or four years. All oh, really? Yeah. Okay. It, it, COVID was devastating to the Philippines and no foreigner in the right mind would want to be there. Like okay. it was just a mess. So again, the properties that I bought are luxury condos. Yes. So it caters towards foreigners. That right. Pay a of course. price for him and no foreigners were in the country that market died years. out died out you know one thing i had to do by the last year of COVID, i was like i just need to rent them out just pay for the utilities right, right. so i started the to just rent them out for like nothing you know the tenants signed a lease pretty long and they're all full now but tenants paying almost nothing to those filipino them. girls you met <laughs> they you guys want an apartment the <laughs> <laughs> they knew exactly they they're knew. like this guy we're they're- gonna we're gonna rent from him for really cheap later <laughs> like i remember you know this guy exactly. you know, this dude came in a box he probably knows nothing what's going I on i know let's put on some fake news <laughs> how big are these apartments are oh, they small. like one bedroom one bedrooms and studios, studios okay. both two and two okay. one bedroom studios you know they're they're all right still you know overall i guess i'm up but not to to the degree if i invested in let's say vietnam <sighs> Ooh, that would have been a completely different story. Yes. Completely. But you didn't. No I real did estate not. in Vietnam. No, I always wanted to, but just never did. Because I thought when I went into Vietnam to invest, I thought the prices were too high. Mm. I was like, a one bedroom is this much? I was like, that compares to- like, That reminds you know, me of Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. I was <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. this is really, it's really expensive. Yeah. While in the Philippines, I was like, this is really, really little for what I see. Right. When I looked, that little pocket looked like Singapore, but outside of the pocket, I didn't know. Yeah. 
because I bought on impulse and, and exactly. instinct. When I stepped out of like Makati and, and uh, BGC, I was like, wow, the rest of the mill is kind of crappy. <laughs> Dude, yeah. One of my students is actually living in, well, he doesn't live in BGC, his cousin does, but he took a video for me of a street in BGC because you're not allowed to smoke there in BGC at all. Oh, wow. But then you can go through this wall. There's this huge wall and there's like a entrance way through the wall. And it's like a little corridor where it ends up into like a slum on the other side of that wall. And people from the BGC, they go through this little corridor and then smoke over there talk, in that talk poor about neighborhood. The and then they come back in through the wall and it's luxury. Talk about the vision, wealth inequality, right? Like that, that's, that's actually literally a physical a wall. wall. He told me, he, yeah. I said, no. And he's like, I'll take a video for you next time. Right. There's literally a wall that separates. It's such a world of difference. Unlike almost anywhere I've ever been to in yeah. the world. Like I think Philippines is probably the biggest disparity of wealth that I've seen that division of like literally cross the street and is scary as right. Yeah. Um, and then once you're inside those walls, it's like paradise. It's, it's like Singapore, yeah. super clean, super nice. Everybody's friendly and, you know, wearing nice clothing. And then just across the street is like a dude shooting up. Right. So right. Right, kind of how it is. Wow. Okay. So what about this exit from Happy Fresh? How did this end? Um, you know, in terms of payout for myself, there hasn't been an exit yet. You know, okay. that's, that's only going to happen if the company ever sells or IPOs or if there's a secondary buyer on the market that wants to buy my shares. So that hasn't happened yet. You know, hopefully it'll happen one day, but with all startups, it's a risk. Mm. So, you know, it could be nothing. It could be something. So hopefully it's something one day. Okay. Um, but I wouldn't hold my breath. Okay. So why did you end up leaving? I left just as the start of COVID happened. Oh, okay. Um, so I wanted a new opportunity after being in Happy Fresh for five years, Food Panda for four years. It was kind of like, well, you know what? I've been doing the same thing for like nine years now. It's yeah. not much different. The models aren't too, too different. Yeah. You know, delivery. Yeah. at the end of the day. And COVID was starting to hit, the business was growing, we raised capital. And I thought there would be a good opportunity to come back to Taiwan to do something on my own. And I didn't know what that was at the beginning. But as you know, back in early days of COVID, Taiwan, people were partying, they yeah. were having fun. Exactly. And the rest of the world was locked down. Singapore was very, very strict on the lockdowns. Right. Like Singapore government, when they of say course. something, it happens. Exactly. Don't you gum. Yep. Exactly. You know, and it was, we faced in Singapore where uh, the lockdowns got as strict as there cannot be any groups larger than two people. And it was really tough for families. So if you were, wow. you know, a husband, wife, and a kid, you can't go all together. Interesting. Yeah. So okay. it was very strict. Draconian. And uh -huh. Yes. You know, that was lockdown in Singapore. And, you know, I, I see. So you were there talk. early days, COVID yeah. lockdown in Singapore. I was there. You okay. know, I went through probably a year and a half of lockdowns in Singapore. And I it was see. on and off, just like the rest of the world. Some days it was good. Okay. Some months were good. Some months were really, really bad. Right. I see. So anyways, you know, doing Happy Fresh for so long. And I decided that, you know, I wanted to, you know, do something else. And ambition always gets to me. Yes. You know, those bright eyes of like, oh, my next opportunity could even be bigger. Right. My next opportunity, I could be the number one guy. I can own most of the company and be, you know, the authoritative figure, like number one guy. And that's when the whole bubble tea okay. thing started to come. So why did I start this? As a, a tech entrepreneur, you're always looking at what's going on globally in the tech landscape, what companies are getting funded, what companies are exiting, what good business ideas, models are out there. 
And at that time, there was this company and still is this company in China called KT. In Chinese, it's called Xicha. That was- Ah, yeah. They were killing it. Killing it. And they still are the killing cheese. it today. Yes. yes, that's the one. I was there They're in Beijing. They're still killing it today. And they were growing. And I found out that these guys have just accepted venture capital money of $500 million on a $9.3 billion USD valuation. Oh, wow. So a bubble tea company that <laughs> that's crazy. has a $10 billion market. Cap. And I think young people don't understand <laughs> what billions of dollars, because so many billionaires these days, and you hear about billions, exactly. a billion dollars, it's a huge accomplishment. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And I was like, wow, this- From selling like $1 teas. Exactly. Selling bubble teas. Yeah. So I was like, okay. And then there was a second company, the second biggest in terms of market cap called uh, Naishue or uh, Nayuki. They IPO'd in Hong Kong. So they actually made it to IPO market cap of $4 billion USD selling bubble tea in China. So wow. I was like, okay. And not only that, across Southeast Asia, there were a lot of food services, F&B, food and beverages company that were raising a lot of funding to do little restaurants, either in the coffee space, especially. Mm. So in Indonesia, a company called Kopi Kanangang, yes. which does coffee. They were at a billion dollar valuation, a unicorn status. Flash Coffee across Rocket, Rocket had Flash, right? Flash Coffee, yeah. they were in Taiwan. They raised at that time, I think a $15 million Series A. I knew those guys. I was like, okay, now bubble tea could be an opportunity. And where's the birthplace of bubble tea? Taiwan, who has experience in Taiwan? I do. Yeah. I have my own little network in Taiwan. And during COVID, I was like, is there an opportunity to do bubble tea on a global scale premium? So it's all about premium bubble. That's what, how Hey Tea was able yep. to differentiate itself from the rest, going to premium rather than cheap, you know, fast service into something that's more experienced. So I thought about this. I needed a team for this. So I called one of my good friends that I've known for a decade, Pat, who's now my co-founder, my COO. Patrick's son. Patrick's son. Yep. And the reason why I called him first over anybody else was I met him through my food panda days back in Taiwan. Okay. Um, when I first arrived in Taiwan, remember, I couldn't really speak Chinese. Pat's Chinese is quite good. And he was working for CPK, California Pizza Kitchen from LA. Oh, nice. They used to have a Taiwan branch. So he was kind of the American ambassador helping them. So when I wanted to sign a contract with CPK and I was doing a lot of the sales because I'm a hustler and I couldn't speak Chinese very well, but I still tried anyways. Mm. Patrick was the one who was like, let me help you. I'll help you out with this deal. I'll translate. I'll talk to the team, the local team to try to get some board. We met through Angela. Of course. The greatest connector in the world. In the universe. Right. Angela, um, shout out. So Angela basically connected us. We became good friends. You know, we worked at CPK. They're one of our first delivery clients that we did delivery for. One of the first set. Okay. Um, and Patrick was paramount in making this deal work. And he went off to do other F&B type of jobs for the next 10 years. We kept in contact, good friends. And I was like, you know, if I'm going to do bubble tea, I need, you know, the best in the F&B. Oh, industry. Okay. So I call up Patrick and I told him about, you know, bubble tea. And he's like, you know what? Like, he was like, I've been searching about bubble tea. He was living in China back then, by the way. Ooh, okay. He was living in Shanghai and he was doing a, a concept kind of like the sweet greens concept. Do you know sweet greens yeah, in the course. US? I the love salad? Sweet greens. Yeah. Yeah. He was doing that in China. Really? So he was the managing director of this big sweet greens kind of concept. Okay. In China, COVID hit. So he was back in Taiwan. His wife was pregnant, I believe, in Taiwan. She's Taiwanese. So they came to Taiwan to kind of like hide out from yep, COVID. Of course. He had no idea what COVID was. It was just like, hey, things are getting scary in China. I'm going to come to Taiwan. My wife's going to give birth. I gave him a call. He's like, I'm in Taiwan right now. I was like, do you know this company on Haiti? He's like, I know all about yeah. it. I was researching about them. 
And I was like, you win, you want to do this, you know? So Patrick joined on board almost from day one, right? When I was just thinking about this, we decided to tackle this. I was able to raise uh, venture capital funding for mm. this business back in the glory. Three years ago, it was almost a completely different fundraising environment. Yes. So I had Rocket Internet. Oh, um, okay. They were my first investors oh, of the wow. business. So they put in a check, you know, the CEO of Rocket Internet, I know. Okay. Um, because my food panda days. One of the Samware brothers? Yes, Oliver himself okay. was the one who nice. invested in the company. Yeah. Gave us a check, found checks from other people through connections. And we decided to do bubble tea based in Taiwan to do a premium bubble tea shop. We didn't know what did premium really look like? What did it mean? How closely were we going to be from Haiti versus doing something completely unique on our own? It took us a very long time with other people involved in the project to come with Odd One Out. And okay. we launched after 560 days, which is like almost a year and a half Okay, uh, from, you know, getting together from that phone call to getting together to launching our shop in Taipei, which you've been to, Yes, which took tons of planning, Dude, uh, resources, sure. money to make this work. That building um, is crazy. It's a beautiful- it really stands out. Beautiful, beautiful building, beautifully designed with some of the best architects and designers on board getting this done. Lo and behold, right? Lo and behold, three-star yeah. Michelin group in Singapore. Yeah. They own a restaurant, which is called Odette. They yes. used to be in 2021, the number one restaurant in Asia, number exactly. eight in the world. Three-star Michelin. So they came on board to help us create this brand with us from very, very early on. Mm. Um, so they helped us out with the whole journey, design the of the brand, you know, the name, everything, you know, was a collaboration with the Lo and Behold group. Okay. Um, that we were very, very fortunate to work with such a prestigious group, so much experience yes. from building amazing brands in Singapore. They're like a huge thing in Singapore, the best beach clubs, hotels, restaurants. They are amazing. Yeah, yeah. And they helped us build Odd One Out. So after 560 days, we launched our Taiwan store. And then we decided that you know the big market is going to be the US, yeah. right? Why compete here in Taiwan with all these other There's bubble tea shops? Every, every corner. So many and selling for only like what $2 USD on average. They also quite cheap, so quite happy. We're like, even though we charge a little more, like Joseph Kwai, I was like, you know, our ingredients are such high quality. We don't have much margin because of our ingredients are just such high quality ingredients. And I'll go into that. Yeah. Why is our ingredients so high? We're probably one of the only bubble tea companies in the world that's actually sourcing from like small farms mm. across Taiwan. Most bubble tea companies just work with a, a distributor supplier. Right. That supplies to, yeah, bulk. Yeah. You know, they produce this amount of tea, you buy it at this price. So, you know, we did our job a year of planning, a year and a half of planning of choosing the right That's what went right into those 560 days. Yeah. Choosing the right teas, working with tea experts, like, you know, some of the best, youngest tea experts in Taiwan, choosing the right tea leaves, choosing the right brewing process, working with mixologists. So we had a competition in Taiwan during COVID. COVID eventually hit, right? Okay. Like there was a scare. All of a sudden, nobody was clubbing anymore. Yep. yep, yep it yep. finally came and we're like, let's take this opportunity. All the bartenders and mixologists don't have jobs, right? We don't know how to make bubble tea ourselves, me and Pat. Right. right? He comes from a culinary background, but he doesn't know how to make bubble tea. Okay. Um, we're like, we want to do something premium different. Let's start off by actually running a competition, kind of like Master Chef. Iron Chef, Iron Master Chef. Chef. Yeah. We basically take all these bartenders and mixologists who haven't had job for months. We're going to basically run a competition, invite them over to create a bubble tea inspired drink. Ooh. without any alcohol. Okay. But relying on their uh, you know their palates, their skill set, their mixology. So like a craft. A craft 
how do they craft something delicious, something better, something unique that we think could service consumers. Okay. And so we did this competition, 15 of some of the best bartenders came on board. They basically created our initial group of drinks. Okay. What we the call oddities, the initial menu, which are very sophisticated using bartender techniques, infusion techniques, steaming techniques, ingredients that you would never hear of in a bubble tea, like juniper berries, mm. uh, white fungus, spirulina, red apple bean water, barley, Ooh, barley. CO, you know, CO2 coconut water as a brewing process, which is one of the drinks I brought to you today. Nice. So a lot of these unique drinks came out from that competition. So we spent a lot of time and hence the ingredients that we use in the brewing process where we individually brew each cup one at a time, uh -huh. takes a lot of time with this sophisticated customized espresso machine. So our costs are very, very high, like probably four or five times the cost of other bubble tea places. Yet we could still only sell it for just, you know, ever so quiet, like right. just a couple of cents over our competitors. We're like Taiwan, even though our business is now doing quite well, it's hard to make money when our ingredients are so high. Of course. But margin. America is very different. Right. Where we charge eight, nine dollars a drink with the same ingredients because <laughs> wow. we import ourselves. We're not locally getting teas in America. It's the same high quality teas from Taiwan. All those oolongs, we import ourselves. Of course, you know, the milk is a substitute, but even the sugar, you know, where we handcraft the sugars, we're getting it from Taiwan. So all the other ingredients, the majority ingredients is coming from Taiwan with the same ingredient cost base, but we sell it for nine bucks, yeah, which means premium. now we can make money. Yeah, And so we decided to just full force, our Sawtell store is doing very well, and we're going to continuously expand in the U.S. going forward. When we first met, you were fresh and not so happy from straight from L.A. After a pretty uh, busy, jam-packed schedule of opening that store, you were tired and you were kind of filling in both me and Angela because you hadn't seen Angela in a while. And you were kind of updating her with uh, what's been going on in your life and this new venture. What was this process like of opening the shop in L.A.? Uh, it was um, a crazy experience, one that I- that Do not I have, wish upon your worst enemy. Yes, like, you know, I have a little bit of PTSD of just thinking about it. Right. Uh, but it was probably the toughest, you know, I've done several businesses now and I went through the grind, but I think this grind was different. FMB, it's just a different grind than a tech startup. It's such a hard business. It's such a hard- It is such a hard business, business. really. In Taiwan, when we did it, I was very fortunate to have a full team that, you know, the lo and behold group. And we had like, you know, a full-time marketer, a full-time influencer. We had Angela yes. helping us out with the launch and Melody, you know, the whole yeah. Nest group that yes. came in. You know, Patrick was there, who's a seasoned veteran in store openings, a full-time store manager, R&D staff, like we all went in to create this Taiwan shop with lots of time to prepare. And we did, you know, as great as the jobs as we can. In LA, we took a very different approach because in LA, things are so expensive, mm. so, so expensive. And we don't have a team in LA. It was just Patrick's sister. So she came on board to join Friends our business. Friends and family. That's Absolutely. how it works in F&B. Right. We had Patrick's sister. I flew in one of our staff from Taiwan who's been with us from the beginning, Chi, who's been you know, simply an amazing guy. He came in and even Patrick had to fly back to Taiwan because his wife was pregnant with a second child. Oh. He couldn't miss the, the birth of his child. Okay. Completely understandable. So he wasn't there for our store opening in LA. And I was okay with that. I just wanted to cut costs as much as possible. Let's do it ourselves. And I was like, it's time for me to you get know, dirty, get, get my yeah, hands roll dirty. up the sleeves yeah. and do it. And that was the approach that we did. And, and you it, literally got your hands dirty. Yeah. And I would 
never do it again, <laughs> trying to do it myself because this is not my expertise. You know, I'm the worst handyman in the world. Like I can't even change my light bulb at home. Like I'm that bad at it. So trying to do all this from scratch was not the right thing to do, but I'm kind of a little glad I did it because now I could say I did it. Right. But it was very tiring. The reason is because we're too understaffed, number one, with just right. three people trying to do a store opening all by ourselves with nobody who has experience or expertise in a store opening. And the second thing of why it was so tough is that I completely miscalculated the demand of the business yeah. in LA. That was the reason why. I think a lot of people who do F&B, I give them so much respect, but they were probably smarter than me in understanding like, okay, this is what we can expect. And I'm going to have staff you know, standing by and helping out. Right. I had this super crazy mentality of grinding and doing ourselves that I can um, do it all bootstrap. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to save as much money for the company right. as possible. You know, work as many hours. Even if as there's possible. a little bit of a rush, no problem. I yeah. can, I can, shake. I can do it. I was like, I can do it, you know? And I was completely <laughs> off because our demand in the U S exploded like 10 times beyond our expectations. So it was trying to, for us, all three as non-operators of a business, trying to manage that enormous demand. And we had, you know, customers lining out the door every day. Like before we opened the door, customers were lining up. We'll have customers all day lining up, like up to like 50 customers lining up. And we're all doing a pretty shitty job. Like, cause we don't know how to do this, right? Like trying to, sh I was shaking my first bubble teas ever in my life. I would say like really seriously doing it. The CEO, you literally got behind there. You were ringing up people. Ringing up customers and shaking and drinks. And also shaking drinks because yourself. Because we are three people. <laughs> and trying to service hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of customers in a day. And it was just impossible. And it was a bad experience because I misplanned it. I right. should have hired more people, trained people instead of my approach was like, oh, you know, our location wasn't that good. Our shop design is not that good. Our drinks are pretty expensive. Nobody knows about us. We don't understand the US market. Let's just learn as we grow and learn as we go. And it was the complete opposite approach, you know, starting from, you know, day one, you know, customers were basically doubling every single day up to a point where there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of customers to be serviced by three people. And we just couldn't do it. And we got a lot of pissed off customers. Right. So every day, was trying to manage the expectations of these customers, trying to hire people who just, America, it's very hard to hire. There's a labor crunch, it's yes, expensive. Exactly. Um, they're maybe not as, you know, it's hard to find somebody who has experience in the bubble tea industry versus yeah. in Taiwan, Everyone. everybody has <laughs> yeah, worked at a bubble tea shop <laughs> yeah, yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. So it was tough to manage that. So every day was just about waking up earlier to prepare more, closing the store later. And at one point, uh, not even one point for a period of like four or five months, it was working about 16 hours a day, seven days a week without a break. You know, staff was stressing out. It, it, I, I'm so sorry for what I'd done to them because so many of them were like, you know, crying and just like, couldn't, they, we couldn't, we couldn't manage. handle it. We couldn't handle it. The Customers tsunami. would scream at us wow. because they're like, I've been waiting 40 minutes for a drink in yeah, line and now you're telling together. me it's another 40 minute wait or dude and they would wait 40 minutes for a drink they would wait in line for 40 oh. and then wait another 40 for the drink and they get very very pissed off because there's no indication we have nothing you know preemptively telling them it's going to be an hour wait like right. we, we 
we had nothing in the store, right? Exactly. We had no, no systems, systems. nothing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? So it was just a mess. Most of those days, it was a mess. That's Most usually of the days a good was, problem, right? But, Having, yeah, but not but, for so many months or so many customers, wow. right? It's a good problem to have if you can manage it, but I couldn't manage couldn't it. Couldn't scale quick I enough. Like trying to hire people just couldn't do it. You were telling us that you would open up job openings. People would come in and if they were living, you'd say, can you work today? Dude, it was bad <laughs> because when we put up the job listings, like 30 people would apply, we'll oh, schedule right. an interview. Okay. So, you know, I would you know, have to set time aside and nobody would show up. I think one out of 15 people that we scheduled the interview would actually show up for the interview. Okay. I don't know what the reasoning of not showing up after you agree. Right. But 15. 15, one out of 15 will only show up. And that one out of 15 was pretty much automatically hired as right. long as you can just get started just, right now. Can you without shake? any training, right? without any training because- Figure it out. And please. that's why it was so bad because I knew we were not delivering a great service. We were yes, delivering right. drinks that were off formula. Okay. But, you know, we have a very specific way of making our drinks because we're so crafted. Yeah. And basically anybody who could start right now, go ahead and start making drinks. And I was like, okay, this is how you do it. Do, 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 do. And of course they're not going to do a great job because right. they didn't get training. So that's why those months were so stressful because I just didn't know how to manage this. And I wanted the business to succeed. And I made the wrong call by not hiring and preparing like right. Taiwan, where we over-prepared, over-hired. The US, we went completely opposite approach, which meant that it was super stressful and grueling, demanding. And it got to the point where I didn't have time to eat, to take a piss, to take a shit, to do my laundry. I was wearing like dirty underwear for days in a row. So I didn't have time. Like every single moment that I was awake was about like, how do I just keep up keep with this, this demand? Afloat. Yes. Right. Because if it didn't work out and everybody starts giving us bad reviews, we're done. Yeah. Right. And Americans are very, very They're vicious. They are. Yeah. Right. To the point. Especially in that market too. Right. Because their expectations are high. Right. That area too, you know, West LA, close to UCLA. Sautel is a legendary kind of Japanese area. That street is amazing. It's vibrant. A lot of great restaurants there. You are off of Sautel. So you are not even in a good location. We are right. off prime. And it's the most dense bubble tea location of all of West LA. Of the universe. Right. Yeah, so you got California. so many yeah, competitors yeah, yeah. over there. And we're charging by far the most. Right. At eight to nine dollars, where our competitors are doing maybe six to seven. So people are coming in, like they're like, wow. okay, I'm willing to wait in line and I'm gonna pay all this money, nine dollars for good. drink. And then when they get it, they're like, Where's the boba? That happened so many times where we just, cause the staff wasn't trained or we didn't cook enough because we don't have enough people. We didn't have the foresight to plan. It was like that every day. At one point we ran out of water, literally ran out of water and we freak out where there's customers waiting in line down the block. And I'm like, I'm sorry, we have no water left because our demand was that high. We didn't prepare enough water, filtered water tanks to do the reverse osmosis. So the right. machines would make these sounds like, like they're going to break. And I don't know what's going on because I'm a first time operator. Yeah. Like, so I'll have to tell customers, sorry, can you wait a while? I don't know how long it's going to take to solve the problem. So more and more people building up in line and I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with these machines because it's making this sound. And then after <laughs> finally like 30 minutes, you realize that it's because there's no more water in the water tanks because oh. we didn't buy enough water tanks because we didn't know the demand was going to be that high. 
Dude. You know, it's problems like this trying to resolve every single day that made this experience very, very stressful. Oh, and I'm just kind of glad that it's all over with. The business is running so much more stable. And a big reason is because Patrick flew back to Taiwan okay. after you know, spending time with his wife and his newborn child. He flew back in Taiwan and just immediately with his experience, he was like, okay, this boom, is it. Boom, 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 boom. And in like three days, everybody's like, oh my God, it's so much better. <laughs> right. That's amazing. Yeah. But that's the value of experience, right? That's right. Hundred percent. You know, that's why that's why he's my co-founder. You know, so he wow. came in and like he completely just changed the business around within weeks. You know, that's why you have to have experienced people. No matter how much hustle I put in, I couldn't get it to a better state. So, what about this location? Why did you kind of? Uh, oh, <laughs> you know, we spent a lot of time, as much time as we can, not living in LA, living in Taiwan. Okay, trying to scout out good locations in LA. I think we probably saw like 40, 50 places. Yeah. And through all of our research, we were like, okay, Sawtel has a great demographic of customers who want bubble tea. Right. Because there's so many bubble tea places. Good foot and traffic. Foot traffic yeah. was great. We knew that there was a competitor in St. Gabriel called Sitsa Sanchin, which does incredibly well because they have really high quality premium bubble tea. Okay. There's another one in Irvine called Oro Bay. Again, high quality premium bubble tea. And we're like, but those only two brands that we identified through all of LA. And as if listeners don't know, LA is huge and yeah, massive. It's enormous. Once you live in an Irvine, you don't really leave Irvine. You don't go <laughs> right. all the way to central downtown LA or west side of LA. If you're in, not in traffic, Gabe, right? Not in the traffic. So no we're way. like, okay, these businesses have lineups every day. And we believe, we firmly believe our products are even better than okay. theirs. So we're like, there's definitely an opportunity for a premium bubble tea space, but we need to be in the right location. Okay. And the right location for us is like, we want bubble tea lovers. Mm -hmm. And the best place for bubble tea lovers is Sawtell in the yeah. west side of LA. For sure. So we're like, you need to be in Sawtell. But as you know, Sawtell's business is really, really good. And we couldn't find a prime on Sawtell Street location. Okay. So it just wasn't available. Not available. Yeah. Businesses don't sure. want to move out. 100%. So our agent was like, hey, I found something on the corner of Sawtell and Olympic. Okay. You're not the corner corner unit. You're one, you're the neighbor of the corner unit. I see. In this plaza that's being remodeled that is really, really close, a minute and a half walk away from the main area of Sawtell Street. It's that famous plaza right on the corner. Right on the corner. Famous, Olympic and Sawtell. Right. Okay. But famous because people die there. They call people it, die. It's called the plaza of death. Like so many businesses have tried to survive there, but never survive not being from LA and not being too familiar from LA me and Patrick weren't too aware of this right you're like it's Sawtell it's perfect right and I just wanted to sign something I'm like one of those go go executor that's my background I execute exactly and I was like let's just do it man let's just do it he's like okay let's just do it because we're like even though we knew it wasn't prime but we thought that it was close enough and we knew our products are so good. And let's get the MVP out there, basically. Correct. Yeah. So right? let's just do this. Yeah, yeah, the rent yeah. would be a little cheaper. Then on Prime, we can get started. Yeah. The build out, half of the build out is done. There's an electrical and a bar there. So we decided to choose that location. But after being there before we launched, I was actually super scared because I was like, this location is a lot worse than I thought. No foot traffic. Yeah. Because we were there like constructing. So it was there daily. You right. know? And I was like, there's no foot traffic at all. There's nobody coming here. I was like, damn, we're not going to get it. I had no confidence in the business at then. Oh, you must've been depressed. I was, I was like, so I'm going to do it myself. I was like, I'm not going to hire staff. I I'm going to do it myself because I don't think we're going to get even more than 50 customers a day in this location. I was like, my approach was like, customers are only going to discover us 
by word of mouth. We're going to have every customer that comes in. The few customers that come in a day, I was like, I'm going to make sure they love us. Mm. We're going to provide the best customer experience, the okay. best products. We're going to know their names. We're going to do the whole, back in the day, the whole Starbucks when, you know, they wrote the names on the cops. Yeah. Like, hey, George, thanks for coming Make back. I got you. Because I was like, I didn't think we we're going to get many it's customers. the only way to do it. That was but your plan. I was wrong. <laughs> right. Because right away from day four, we couldn't control the demand. So that's the soft tone. That's why we chose that location. In retrospect, it wasn't a bad decision. Right. Um, but, you know, there's definitely better locations in Sawtell. And you built out the whole thing. You became an interior designer and a carpenter as well. Uh, so not everything, obviously. Okay. We still had help from a, a friend who's an interior designer that helped us out. But a lot of her renderings didn't work out because of materials. We have an, an actual construction company doing it. Like I don't have the license for all of that. Right. So don't get me wrong. There was professionals helping out, but a lot of the other stuff was done by myself. You know, the lighting changes, changing the lighting, yeah. um, the wall decorations was all done by myself. You know, the posters here, plants over here, installing the shelves on the walls was done by myself. And a lot of other stuff was done by myself. And when I say myself, like myself and the team members, okay. my staff from Taiwan. What is the space like in terms of size? Uh, Sawtell store is about 750 square feet, which square is pretty feet. small. It's about, uh, that's How many about ping is that ping. For that Taiwanese? would be like 27, 26 ping. Right. Which is actually pretty huge. Right. For Taiwan. Size. Or Taiwan yeah, sizes yeah, 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 in yeah. America. That's considered very small. Exactly. They usually do about a thousand, thousand two for mm -hmm. a bubble tea shop. We decided to do something a little smaller as an MVP yeah. just to see if we can get business. We didn't want to spend a lot of money on rent. Is there any seating in there? Uh, just a bench so people could wait, okay. wait for the drinks, but no tables. It's really like a pickup bar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's not really a place to hang out. It's a grab and go okay. type of concept. So everything's smooth now. Yeah. Right now it's very smooth. Operationally, the team is trained. We hired everybody we needed to hire. I think we're up to like 22 staff now. Mm. Um, so we have enough staffing. They're trained. Still, obviously, there's more training that needs to be done, but at least they can, you know, make the drinks on a timely manner. The average wait time from when I was there was about 30 minutes to wait for your drink. Now it's been reduced to 10. Oh, nice. So that's a big, big difference. And customers are much more willing to wait 10 minutes than 30 minutes for a drink. Patrick came back last week, just this week, actually. He just caught back and no problems so far with the store, you know? Nice. So we have the store managers, the assistant managers, the line managers all set up that Patrick set up completely. Mm. So the store is running and I think we're both comfortable spending a little bit of Taiwan to unwind a little bit. Our Taiwan store is running, you know, we have an amazing team in Taiwan, store managers in Taiwan that just runs Taiwan without us worrying about it. So mm. me and Patrick could take this time. He could be with his family. I could be with my girlfriend, spend time in Asia. I'll be back early next year, probably mid January. I don't want to be gone for too long mm. and start preparing for our second shop in LA, which is a very prime location, Third Street, Santa Monica, on the promenade. On the promenade, on Third the promenade. Street promenade. Yeah. A few blocks from the sea, from the beach. Three blocks from the sea. A lot of shopping, incredible foot traffic. You are inside of the promenade? Yep. We yeah. are actually in the middle because we actually grabbed a gigantic kiosk in the middle. Um, so it's, it's a kiosk that used to have three tenants. So we just kind of merged them all together. Also 750 square foot. So like almost 800 square foot kiosk in the middle that we completely redesigned for our brand. It's going to be a flagship U.S. shop. We're between Foot Locker and Sephora. Wow. Right. So pretty prime, uh, a That's little super prime. We're now. on the north side, which isn't as busy as the south side. And Third Promenade has died down in traffic mm. over COVID. 
Okay. A, a lot of homeless started coming. So it's not as busy as it used to be. Hence why we got such great rent for the space. Okay. Uh, but it's still a pretty prime location. It's an iconic location. Yes. Like for California. Right in the middle. That's yeah. super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like right across the street from the AMC theater. So if you know the yes, AMC theater, yes, we're right yes, across yes. like a 20 right second there. walk right there. Oh, that's a perfect place to have a tea place. Right. Right outside with, the with gelatos as well, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you had our gelatos in of Taiwan, course. they're delicious. They as are well. delicious. So it'll be gelato, bubble tea proposition with our brand, you know, redoing that whole space. And we think that it's going to make its mark on Third Street. People are going to notice it. It's going to be beautifully designed. We hired a top designer that does Chipotle's concept stores. So they have something called like Chipotle Lab, which Ooh. is concept stores across the US to do something new. I haven't and, seen those. Okay. Um, these are the guys who do all their concept stores, which are very, very like- Concepty. You know, yeah, yeah, very, out very there. out there. So we had them design our shop in Third Street. Okay. Yeah. Is it going to look like the Taipei shop? Because, you know, the Taipei shop is also a piece of artwork as well. So um, borrowing some elements. And one thing that we are going to spend more time in 2024 is sinking all these shops that we have into something a little more cohesive and consistent where the Sawtell- the Taipei shop and the Third Street shop is all going to look pretty different from each other. Okay. Um, they're going to have certain elements that relate to each other, but it's still going to be very distinct because all of them are very distinct buildings. The Taipei building is a two-floor independent building. The Sawtell one is more of a standard like shop mall, rectangle shape. And the Third Street Santa Monica is a center it's a kiosk, kiosk. Yeah. You know, that's an oval-shaped kiosk. Right, so right, right. they're all so different. So it's a little hard making them all look the same. But it fits with the brand as well anyway. All one out. out. Yeah. Exactly. So it makes sense. It makes sense. Do you have a plan for a soft opening or a, yeah. a date in um, mind? So we're going to start construction early next year. It's going to take a couple of months. We're aiming for a May launch okay. for our third street launch date, uh, probably soft opening into a, a grand opening. But we want to be ready for the summer next year. Right. Yeah. Okay. Spring, summer. Hopefully. Soon to be coming. Everything, you know, construction, there's always delays. So yes, we're crossing sure. fingers, but wouldn't be surprised if it's a little later. And you guys had a small thing, a small presence in Smorgasburg as well. Right. And you do your research, man. Yeah. man. Look at yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we are in Smorgasburg starting January this year. So we've been there for one full year. Smorgasburg is a weekend foodie market in LA, exactly. downtown LA by the row. It's known to have like gourmet curated food vendors. So it's not the crappy, cheap, it's like, you know, lobster spaghetti, but quality. Like lobster. craft. Everything yeah. is craft. Um, who else is there? That's pretty popular. Broad Street Oysters, you know, freshly shucked oysters. There's some really good vendors that come from Smorgasburg, started off and they graduate and they become a very big deal in the U.S. Smorgasburg is kind of known as that breeding ground of some of the best cuisines. We got in, we applied. They're very strict on the selection process. They tried our drink. The general manager, Zach, tried our drinks. He loved it. He was looking for a bubble tea vendor that cares about what they do. So many bubble tea vendors apply every right, year. Right, just for business. And but. he's like, no, your stuff is too generic. Yeah. Like you're here for making money. He's like, we want people who love food. Had our products, was a maze. So we got in, we've been operating for the last year, but we're actually, uh, this Sunday is going to be our last time at Smorgasburg. Oh, okay. We decided you're winding to, that down. Yeah. Um, the reason why is because it takes a lot of effort to set up a market. It's waking up at five in the morning, yeah, cleaning, you know, it's great to get your exposure out there, but, but it's with, a grind. It's a grind. And with our new shop opening up in Sawtell's business, you know, booming and we're so busy on the weekends, it's hard to operate both. So we decided to full focus on our Sawtell, our Third Street Santa Monica store that's going to be launching and perhaps looking for another location as well. So we're a little too busy, a little too stretched. 
So where is the third location hopefully going to be? Or where are some places that you're kind of scouting, some places that are interesting to you? Well, we're scouting Koreatown. We think that could be a great market. A lot of USC students go to Koreatown. Exactly. Lots of boba there. They're all pretty crap in our opinion. Big market of, of Asians and boba tea consumers. So we think that could be a great market. We're also looking at Irvine, you know, high income Asians. Asians that love boba tea. University of Chinese immigrants. You got it. In the house. You got it. And, you know, we believe we do have the best product out there. So even with our high price point, you know, there will always be a, need, a market, a, a market, niche. a niche. And we think we could fill that out. After you conquer California, anywhere else in the US that you're thinking? Any I other would markets? love to do Texas. I think Texas is the next obvious choice. Exactly. Come on down, y'all. Yeah. You know, exactly. I, I've never been there myself. So I know nothing about Texas, but I have family there. I have friends who live there and they just tell me great things where there's a huge immigration right now of Californians, especially Asians that are going in, working in these tech jobs, all these tech companies setting up, you know, they're making good money while labor costs are still very cheap. Competition is still not quite there. Like in LA, tax benefits. So we think that that could be a very obvious choice, but it's mm -hmm. about, you know, one at a time, understanding the market, making some connections and launching shops. So it's somewhere down the roadmap. We don't know exactly when, but it's probably going to be more of a 2025 thing. Okay. I would say once we're nicely established in California and LA right. with a few stores, then we kind of go a little more aggressive out of state. Okay, nice. Yeah. Like I said, we will uh, make some meetings happen. My brother has a awesome uh, Yakiniku restaurant out there as well. You can go eat there and then um, see the market as well. Because yeah, I think definitely Texas, Dallas is where my brother's at. It's it's a really great market. I hope so. You yeah. know, I hope, you know, we could, you know, make money there. Yeah. You know, it's very important for a startup these days to make money, you know, exactly. no more cash burn. Got to start making that profit. So hopefully we can make money there, push out our brand, introduce a new type of tea style. You know, mm -hmm. to all Americans and not just Asians. Like, you know, we find that non-Asians really love our product as well. Like they're really wowed by what we do. And we want to transform this, you know, coffee drinking market, 90% plus coffee drinking market into something that's different, which could be tea. But right now, tea is usually viewed as kind of like, you know, you have Lipton's tea, which right. is like sugar, right? Like sweet, you know, iced tea. You have right, that. Some lemon in it. Right. Or you have tea that is bubble tea, which is also black balls and tons of sugar, like really low quality quality tea leaves. We believe tea can be enjoyed in another form, which is high quality Taiwanese teas, high quality bubble teas. And I think we can introduce that to the rest of the world. So we think the market's quite large, actually. So can you tell a little bit about those ingredients then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we pride ourselves on using a lot of botanical ingredients. It's one of our value propositions. So what that means is that we use a lot of natural botanical ingredients to make anything from our syrups to our jellies to our overall drink. So for example, our syrups are all handcrafted, meaning that we just don't buy something from a bag or from a supplier and just pour it into the drinks. Mm. Uh, we cook it, you know, in a stove and we infuse them with different type of botanical ingredients like lavender, mm. right, fresh lavender flowers. Uh, yeah, lemon we had grass. a lavender drink last time we visited your right. place. It was amazing. So we use fresh lavender and, and we cook it to make it into a syrup, fresh lemongrass that we cut in the morning. You know, yeah. we go to the Thai market and get exactly the Exactly, I was going to say, it's yeah. very Thai. It's beautiful. Right? Um, we make a lavender syrup from that. 
We use juniper berries, which is the main ingredient of a gin. Mm -hmm. Make one of our drinks. We crush those juniper berries. So it has that distinct gin type of smell to it. Right. You know, and infuse that with dried mangoes to extract its sweetness. And with our red oolong tea. And, you know, we infuse that for 24 hours. Right. That's how we make our gin drink. It's called a gin. Tainan tainan mangoes. It's it's Thai mangoes. We use a Darwin. Interesting. Yes. It's a Thai. It's called Irwin. Irwin. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Irwin mangoes. So that's what we use to extract the sweetness. We have white fungus by Moore. Yeah. Um, so we take it's healthy and delicious. We take organic white fungus, fresh, we steam it, and then we infuse it with real wild ginger flowers for some of its unique properties. We steam it together with our jade oolong tea. We literally put it in a steamer pot, oh. you know, and that's how we make the drink. Nobody else probably in the world would steam bubble tea drinks. Like yeah. we, we steam it all together. Why we do that? So we get the collagen from the white fungus into our drinks. One of our famous, most popular drinks in the US is called the Yuzu Osmanthus. So Yuzu is, Ooh, Yuzu, Yuzu is coming Japanese, from Japan. You know? Beautiful. We take Yuzu, we take Osmanthus flowers, yes. right? We take honey. It's nice and sweet. Yeah. Right? And we take our tea, we infuse all of those ingredients together. And we have something very unique called silk boba. which is getting very popular in the U.S. right now. We invented this product called Silk Boba is becoming a thing, which is where we take kind of boba, like tapioca pearls, grass jelly. We kind of mix something in between. So it has a very unique chew to it. And we infuse them with different flavors like jasmine green, oolong tea, or donggua, a winter melon. Yes. Um, And we're always trying to create new ingredients, um, new flavors that can be, you know, delightful, a little less sinful. Right. Right. Like right. your typical, like, hey, tang, you know, black sugar, exactly. or what, whatever all those other places do. Yeah. We're trying to do something a little different, spin it off a little bit. So people like myself and yourself could enjoy because prior to doing this business, truth to be told, is that I stopped drinking bubble tea for almost 20 years. You know, I drank it as a 20 year old kid. As a teenager. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and they started to look after my health a little more. Right. And I was like, I can't drink this on a daily basis. I'll spoil myself maybe once a year. Right. Now that we're 23, you know, we gotta, <laughs> we gotta watch. Exactly. (laughs) Right. So um, we wanted to make something that would be more catered towards more sophisticated, mature audience. Hence why we're using these botanical ingredients. What is this silk boba? Silk boba, man. That sounds silky. Sounds beautiful. Sounds sexy. People love it. I love that product. It's Um, hongwe, right? That's right. So hongwe is a traditional Taiwanese dessert topping that you put on a swapping. Yeah, Yeah, the the shaved shaved ice. ice. You know, they use this old, like this traditional ingredients, usually yellow called hongwe. And we basically took that, we modified it to be more slurpable in a straw. We infused it with different ingredients like either winter melon or our uh, jasmine green tea. We're coming up with a new one too. And uh, we added into boba and we're the first people in America to do it, to introduce, you know, it's silk boba or hongwe. Silk boba is the name that we gave it. Right. You know, that's going through a trademarking process right now. We're going to register that name. Oh, nice. Um, Back off anyone else. Right. That's that's ours, man. (laughs) Um, And it's becoming a thing and people love it. It's just a really unique chew, a different way to enjoy your tea. Yeah. That QQ is nice. It's really nice. That chewy. It's really nice. I love it. Um, It's a thing in Taiwan. And, you know, I think it has a lot of potential in the U.S. as well. It's just a great product. Yeah. Right. And we cook it every single day fresh. You know, it's not something that, that comes delivered. Like, you know, we stir it in a pot, you know, we add our own ingredients to it. We add our own handcrafted sugars to it every single day, fresh, and it's delicious. Okay. So what about the teas themselves? Where are they coming from in Taiwan? You were talking about these kind of right. small batch farms. and Right. So I think, you know, in Taiwan, Taiwanese people would be able to relate more of what we're doing versus in America. Now, the difference is, is that people in Taiwan, they grew up drinking tea. 
either with their families, but more so with all these drink stores. Yeah. And a lot of these drink stores do have a lot of tea choices in Taiwan. Selections. Right. In America, it's not like that. Bubble tea really works on there is- it's more your, of the toppings. Yeah. The tea is just the tea. The tea, you got your black tea. I want a green tea. Right. Right. And uh, I want an oolong tea. Maybe a jasmine tea, and an oolong. Yeah. Something like yeah. that, right? The, but people don't really understand tea in the U.S., so what we do in our Taiwan and our U.S. business is that the vast majority of our teas are oolong teas. Not mm. all, but the vast majority of them. Because why do we choose oolong tea? Because oolong tea is the most diverse tea out of the tea family. There's only seven tea families, white tea, black tea, oolong tea, green tea, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Right. So oolong tea is very, very diverse. And why is it diverse is because it depends on how long you ferment it, you roll it, right? that gives it a different flavor. All teas come from the same tea plant, unlike wine. Right, right. right. So it's all based on process. And Taiwan is known to have the best environments to do an oolong style tea, which mm. is hence oolong tea Taiwan people understand. Yeah. So we, when we want high quality teas, we realize that if we source from Taiwan, which is our brand, mm -hmm. right? We're a Taiwanese brand yep. that wants to go global. Taiwan has some of the highest quality tea in the world. It has oolong, which is diverse, which means we can do different flavors. Mm. So what we do is we have so many different types of oolongs that some of them taste like a green tea, like our cui yu, which is jade in English. Mm -hmm. It's lightly fermented and oxidized. So it's almost like a green tea. Mm. And we also have a jasmine green oolong tea. So it's similar to like the jasmine tea, but in an oolong style, Okay. right? We have something called red oolong, which is part of our champion. It's basically our flagship product okay. for the company. And that red oolong is fermented so long that it tries to simulate a black tea flavor, Ooh. but with its own unique, distinct touch to it. Right. Um, and that's the tea that we won the um, the, the champion, the champion. Tea, the competition in okay. Taiwan in 2022. So we have all these different types of oolongs. And Taiwanese people, when they hear, they're like, oh, yeah, Hong Long, we, yeah. They, they heard of it. Right. Maybe not everybody has had it, but maybe, or Dong Ding, they're like, yeah, I heard of it. Because yeah. people, Taiwanese people understand tea a little more. But when we introduce these drinks to the US, people are like, what the fuck is any of this? <laughs> like, they're like, where's my jasmine green and my roasted oolong? Well, yeah, we have a lot boba. of oolong, yeah. right? And they're yeah, like, yeah. it's more about boba. Yeah. So we're trying to introduce Taiwanese tea culture to the US to be like, hey, there's so much more than just what you're getting today. Tea is delicious. There's so many benefits to it. It's so diverse. And we need a medium to introduce tea to the US market. And we think the best medium right now is bubble tea form, mm. in the form of bubble tea form. I don't think if we started to launch shops that are like tea tasting with the Kung Fu style, you know, they, right, right, like, I just right, don't right. think Americans are going to bite into that. It's yeah. going to take too long. Right now, the medium is, you know, something a little sweetened in a, that, that fast food format. You take out small ticket size, start enjoying tea with boba. And eventually what I think the trend is going to change where people are going to graduate from boba one day in the U.S. Just like Taiwanese people graduate from boba. A lot of shops don't sell boba here. And eventually people in Taiwan, most of the time, they just order pure tea without sugar because they just enjoy the taste of good tea. Yeah. And what we hope is eventually to get to that level in America a little more. But in the meantime, introduce delicious, refreshing type of drinks with our teas inside. And after a while, they're like, oh, you know, if I've had that milk tea for a while, maybe I'll try it without milk because I like that flavor. Right, right, right. right, right and right. that's how we're going to introduce tea culture to the U.S. High quality teas, you know, and we're one of the very, very few brands that would carry these high quality teas from Taiwan. 
Where in Taiwan are you guys sourcing these from? All like Alishan over. or? All over. All these different cities like, uh, you know, Pingdong, Nantou, Nantou. Um, you know, Taidong, like everywhere. So Pretty much we all have, throughout Taiwan. Yeah. Well, wherever we identify a very high quality, good tasting tea, that's what we source for. So when we do our sourcing process, tea, as you may know, there's like tea you could buy for like a dollar and there's tea you could buy for a thousand dollars for the same grammage. It's kind of exactly. like wine or whiskey. Like some puarcha right. from China, from Yunnan. I was at a friend's house and he had like 70 year old, like a, a brick of puarcha and it's only from Puar, from, you know, Yunnan. So that's, that's exactly right. So it's the prices range and the quality range is significantly different. When we source our teas, we believe that generally speaking, the higher the quality of the tea, the better the taste is for our palates, okay, right? Because you have to remember, we're not just selling just pure tea, like in hot water steeped, and then you drink it in a small cup. Like we're putting it into a cup with ice, with sugar, with milk, with other types of ingredients. But generally speaking, a high quality tea does equate to something that's good with our drink. But it's not always about the most expensive high quality. It's also what we think would work well with the infusion and blending with other ingredients. Mm. So we try tons of teas from all over, primarily from Taiwan because we are sourcing it from here, but also from other places as well. Okay. Right. So we do have some black teas coming from Kenya, Ooh. Sri Lanka. Ceylon, yeah. Right? Exactly. Um, Sri Lanka. We have matcha from Japan. From we have Uji, Uji matcha from, yeah, from Japan. Right. And we're gonna continuously look for more teas so due diligence in japan right that's why i'm going to osaka i'm never gonna leave (laughs) exactly so yeah it's a pretty tough process it's very time consuming it's costly but at the end of the day we think it's worth it we think it's worth it we think that maybe not all customers can tell the difference but there definitely is a niche customers who will be like wow this is different not because of your boba or the sugar you put in is because i could taste the tea like the tea quality is so high and that's what we're trying to do okay so as you walk in the store in Dongchu, right? Your flagship store in Taipei. You come in and you'll see the menu. And on the right side, there are ice creams. Mm. So can you tell us a little bit about this? Why did you guys kind of decide to do this? And yeah, just this part of the menu. Got it. The ice cream was a side product that we never really thought about when we started this business. Now, what happened during this competition that we had for these mixologists, Okay, one of the mixologists came up with a recipe and what he did is he made an ice blend, like a bingsa, oh. like an American milkshake, you could think. Yeah, but, yeah. But basically his recipe was, he took our red oolong, okay. you know, the one, the same red oolong, that yep. won the competition, so yep. very high quality. And he made it into an ice cream, a gelato. Ooh. And then he takes this as a base ingredient, then he adds ice and then the milk and then the other stuff that he did, right? And he created this drink and we're like, holy crap, this, this is magician. so good. Yeah. Right. So good. Sounds good. And we're like, we want to sell this drink, but if we sell this drink, we have to start making gelatos ourselves. Okay. And we're like, okay, um, how hard is it going to be? We're like, okay, we tested. And then when I was testing out this drink and making it ourselves, like, you know, we, we got the recipe. We're like, okay, we started making gelato. And then when we started tasting that, the Honglong ice cream mm. ourselves, the gelato, we're like, just on its own, it's so good. Mm. It's like so, so good. And actually a lot of the feedback in our early days was like, dude, your bubble teas are really good, but this gelato is even better. That <laughs> right. was a lot of the feedback we were getting. Uh, and people were like, you should just really think about selling this Hong Oolong right. gelato 
And we're like, I don't know. And when we are, you know, deciding on building that store, we're like, okay, if we want to, you know, really emphasize that we're doing everything very, very high quality, right? With the you know, best ingredients, the best equipment, we need to invest in a real ice cream machinery, right, right, equipment, right. right? We can't just make it with our freaking- uh, yeah, With your hand, basically. With our hand. What's that to brand? A KitchenAid, you yeah, know, like we, we can't exactly. do that. We're doing that now for testing, but right. at scale, like we're going to need- An Italian an machine. <laughs> exactly. So we decided to buy one, Capigiani, which is the best quality ice cream. Again, we do everything high quality. There you go. We got that. And then we're like, okay, we got this really expensive machine that's doing this red oolong ice cream. We're like, let's try different flavors. You know, we're using a lot we of really- We have that machine. We have that well. machine. We have you this- have the ingredients. We have these great R&D team, you know, let's try these different ingredients. And then Chi, our head R&D guy who does our ice creams and ingredients, came up with these other incredibly delicious flavors that just blew us away. And we're like, not only do we have good bubble teas, we can do really good gelatos. Let's just carve out a little space by the register. Right. Silly a little space carved out. Yeah, of the, that only just has like four or five flavors, yeah. right? Let's try to see if people like those gelatos too. And a lot of the base Bingsa milkshake drinks come from the gelatos. So we scoop okay. it out and put it into our drink and make it into a icy. Oh, I see. And that's how so it started. Double it. Actually. Right. So it's gelatos that can be bought on its own, which are very delicious, or gelatos that can be made into a milkshake, bingsa right. type of drink. And they are very delicious. We get really great feedback. So for our Third Street Santa Monica store, we're also going to be providing that gelato because it is very different. We don't sell vanilla chocolate ice cream, chocolate yeah. chip. Right. You know, mint, like every single right, ice cream right, store. Right. Our flavors are like our red oolongs, our flagship, Earl Grey lemongrass combination, yes. pineapple with Japanese shisho leaves. Oh, that's one of my, that's probably my favorite. One. Super good seasonal though. Okay, shisho leaves, that's again, why. this fresh shisho leaves that we source, it comes only seasonal. White cacao and lavender. These are the combinations that we go with and <sighs> they're extremely unique Exotic. and they're extremely delicious. So we think that we have a very good ice cream proposition as well as mm. part of, again, we're odd one out. We could do whatever the fuck we want. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Like, nothing that we do is going to be weird because it's supposed to be weird. That's exactly. That is on right. brand. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So speaking of that, also the interior design. The interior design is special. It's different. Mm. You gave us a really nice tour last time, a personalized tour mm. explaining it. I have a picture kind of up here that we can look at, but everything about it is very unique. Can you give a little tour of if people kind of walk into the store, what are some of the kind of design elements and why did you choose them? Yeah, so we hired an, an incredible uh, interior design studio, like a very expensive. They are actually specialized more in like really high-end residential. They don't do much commercial, but we love their work so much and we wanted this high-end residential feel in a commercial environment. We mm. asked them they're up to that challenge and they were up for it. They knew how unique the space was in such a flagship location in Taipei. They even knew about this building before we showed the picture. Like we know this building. Oh, interesting. Right. It's a very iconic building, kind of like yeah. semi-iconic building. It's right behind the clubs too. Right behind the clubs <laughs> on a, a street that used to be the busiest shopping street, not anymore, but it used to be the biggest shopping street right in the dead center. And not many buildings in Taiwan are independent. You know, they're always connected. Exactly. There's always residentials, people living over, unless you're like a shopping mall. Right. So this is like its own little it's building. It's like a little Mediterranean villa or something. 
Right. So we're like, okay, let, what can we do with this space? So we hired the design company and we gave them some guidelines of, you know, we're odd one out. We want it to look different. We want it to look special. We don't want things to always be perfect. So with them, with the Lo and Behold group, we all came together to try to see how we wanted to design the store. So when you come to the store in Taiwan, what you can see is that it's a store that doesn't look like any other bubble tea store in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, we have this terrace, you know, patio in the front that you kind of walk in. Uh, the materials are imported from Italy. You know, it's very high end materials that we put in the store. You walk in through the door and you'll kind of be greeted by this giant center bar piece. Right. That's curved. It's curving, like, like an it's S, undulating. Yeah. Right. Kind of like this S shaped curve that's going around throughout the store. And we wanted that bar because we wanted to show that there is a lot of flow. Like a lot of the things that we did was based on this artist in Singapore, this up and coming artist. He saw our drinks and how beautifully layered they were. He started to draw these art pieces, these brushstroke paintings, you know, on a kind of like a mosaic. And he's like, this is how I envision in an art way your store looks like and had a lot of these flowy brushstrokes. So we looked at mm. that and we started to put them in some of our assets or so cups have these brush strokes on it. Mm. And then our interior designer loved it. He's like, well, let's make a bar that's like those brush strokes. So that's why it's flowed like the brush. Nice. That's why it's got like this S. So okay. you have this beautiful bar. And then behind the bar, what you'll see is the material that we chose. It's actually all cork. Yeah. And why do we choose cork? Because our drinks were started by this competition with mixologists. These drinks that you're drinking were crafted by the mixology world, you know, the alcohol world. So we chose cork as a material for our walls. Nice. And then the next thing that you'll probably see is that there's holes around the store or edges around the store that are not like perfect circles or squares or clean cut. We purposely designed that because we wanted to show that you don't have to be perfectly shaped or perfect to still be beautiful, mm. right? Imperfect, you know. Yeah, that's like wabi-sabi, the right? Japanese concept of imperfection. Oh, yeah. you stole that without even knowing Exactly, it, right? yeah, wabi-sabi. Right. Yeah. So we took that concept. So we purposely made these cuts and these broken type of areas, but still very beautiful and aesthetically pleasing. Mm. So that's another design concept that we have. And even our ceiling, if you come to the store, you see that the ceiling looks like wallpaper has been ripped apart from the ceiling. Right. We purposely did that. And it's very obvious that we purposely did it. It's because we want that to represent a ripping away from traditional bubble tea, Ooh, like a contract okay. just ripping away. I you know, see. that's part of our brand identity. We want to do something different, something odd, oh. right? So we even incorporated that into our store. So you walk in the store, you see all these elements, you order at the front, and then you walk along the bar to pick up your drink in another back patio that you right. open another door. And on the way, you'll see our tea presso machine. And we have this, people probably don't know what tea presso is, but it's, you could think of it as we brew our teas through an espresso machine. So it's freshly brewed. We take our loose leaves, we grind them to a certain- so These spec. are full loose leaf yes. teas. Full loose leaf teas that are very expensive. We grind them using an imported German coffee grinder machine. It's an EK43, which is probably the most expensive grinder out there. Thousands and thousands of dollars. You grind it to the right specification. Each tea is different. Mm. And then we put them in an espresso handle and in a machine that looks like an espresso machine, except that it's customized. And why it's customized? Because when you brew an espresso, it's actually quite simple. You have just hot water going through the espresso leaves and then it comes into a cup. Right. It drips. Um, it drips. Tea is not done that way. Right. Tea needs to be steeped for several minutes and it goes through different phases to get different flavors. So when you go through traditional Chinese tea brewing, you know, like if you go to like a dim sum, you know, they'll put tea and then hot water 
and they don't throw out the tea when they right. give you more tea. They right. actually pour more water on top of the tea exactly. because it has a different flavor and they'll do it up to four times yeah. until they, they're like, okay, now you're done with it. Now we'll bring you new tea leaves because every single time you steep tea with the same tea leaves, it brings a different flavor out. Releases, releases different kind different. of aromas and flavors. Right. So this machine actually goes through the four phases. So that's why it takes anywhere up to three to five minutes to brew one single cup of tea because each phase brews for anywhere between 30 seconds to a minute, Dang. you know, and different water amounts and pressure amounts. So it's a very sophisticated tea presso machine. machine. It's a crazy machine, but we believe it extracts the most out of the tea flavors versus like other bubble tea stores, which basically takes a whole bunch of tea leaves and they brew them early in the morning right. with hot water. Yeah. And that's that's it. And that's pretty much, sure. maybe they might do it twice, twice a day. Right. But, but Just a refill. The consistency is going to change throughout hours, you know, just like anything else in the world, it degrades over time. So this you know, is cup by cup. Cup by cup. So that's, that's what we do. So customers can see us brewing the teas through this. People are always think that we're serving coffee. It's actually their tea is coming out of this machine. So this is this gold machine. Yes. You come in and it's a little fancy and people see us working on that machine, pouring their tea in. And then we got to pour ice and cool it down and shake it. And then behind that, you will see a draft system, a beer tap system, and the wall texture is cork. And we do a draft system is because we have drinks that are freshly brewed, which are teas and milk teas, but our creative drinks are done by mixologists, which are usually infused for 24 hours the day before. And when we're infusing them, we put them in a pressurized keg and then that's connected to the draft system. So we just pour it out like pouring like, like beer, a beer, right? right? Because uh, the, the whole concept was that, hey, mixologists created these drinks. It's almost like, you know, cocktails on tap. Mm. So it'll come out, you know, to keep that whole mixology inspiration. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our drinks come from this tap system that customers can see okay. as they walk through the store. And then finally they open the door, they grab their drink through this window, and then they go through an alley. So it's another section of the store, this alley where we have this customized outdoor ceiling. Like undulating ceiling. Right. We call it the wave you. of sunshine that goes okay. through the whole brush strokes with the waves. And sunlight would basically go through the holes on top of that ceiling, displaying a shadow throughout that alley. It's very Instagramable, very beautiful. And every time of the day, the shadow would be different as the sun is moving from left to right. And even the tree on top would have leaves that fall on the ceiling, which would give it a different shadow. So every experience is unique. Right. It's different, hence our overall brand uniqueness, right? And then you can go to the second floor where there's like a seating space with these unique type of furniture that we chose. And we changed the theme of what we put on the walls. You know, we've done it twice. So maybe once a year we change the theme so people can come back, mm. enjoy a drink. It's quite quiet, peaceful, and then carry on their day. Right. You said you had some kind of, you designed it in the beginning, kind of like an art gallery. Right. You had that in mind. Yeah. That's so what we had in mind and Angela helped us out with this concept we had this campaign called Embrace the Odd, Embrace Your Oddness. And what we did is that we selected about 25 people that's helped us create our brand through that 560 days. Okay. And these are employees, they're, you know, me and Pat. It is our designers, it is our architects, it is our bartenders, it is our taste testers, right? Just different people that we thought that had an interesting story about them, kind of like what you do, mm. inviting people with an interesting story. Mm -hmm. And we asked them to share something odd about them. Mm. to the world, you know, because 
people usually, especially in Asia, being odd is usually not quite accepted. Right. It's more of a formity type of society, exactly. right? We're like, how do we change that? And people can actually embrace what makes them different. So share a story, write it out. We'll put it on the wall of our second floor and share a photo, like an art photo of something that represents that. It could mm. be a picture of yourself or something you're interested in that kind of goes side by side with your with photo, story. just like okay. an art gallery. Yeah. And so 25 of these people participated and put it on top. Mm -hmm. um, and it, love it very much looked like an art gallery yeah. when you came in. So you'll read everybody's story about how they're different and odd and how they embrace it and how that made them into who they are today. So what is the oddest thing about you, Mr. Ronald Chan? Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about my story and I, I, I that's another podcast episode right? that might get a little kinky. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll tell the, uh, the PG 13 okay, the PG version, for this one. Okay. Uh, the PG 13 version for this odd story. What I had on our wall for odd one out was kind of like trying to let people know where I came from and what I am today. Mm. So like what I already described on the show was, you know, growing up, I was a huge otaku. Mm. that loves video games and Japanese anime and, and Japanese culture. And growing up, that was kind of like uncool where kids were like, you know, white kids are playing basketball and football. You know, I'm like watching anime and playing video games. Right. Um, and then, you know, when I got to Taiwan, I turned into this party animal, you know, this playboy, playboy. around, you know, that's just, another episode. Yeah. You know, that was a big <laughs> life, you know, just exactly. like going around and traveling around and having the time of my life, you know, mm. making money, spending money that type of thing. And then over the last couple of years, you know, I, I've kind of retired that life. And now I'm very, very back into my anime days and video games. So now I'm, you know, playing Final Fantasy 16 almost every single day. Oh, I'm wow. watching tons of anime uh, with my girlfriend um, and I don't go out and socialize. And it's actually gotten to a point where I, I actually really dislike socializing. So going to a bar or a club and meeting a bunch of people makes me very nervous and anxious these days. Uh, Something about COVID changed me. Okay. Right. And, and, and lots of therapy. Right, right, <laughs> COVID right. COVID right. and lots of therapy. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. this kind of changed me from this party animal. Now huh. going back to my roots of kind of like an introvert, shy, nice guy, you know, that enjoys playing video games with friends. So um, that's kind of like my life now. But people in Taiwan, my old friends always known me as like, crazy Ron. Like, right. You know, the guy this that's go getter, like, this tech dude, yeah, this startup you know, guy going and big playboy. Yeah. Type of thing. Partying in the Philippines, completely buying retired apartments. Now. Yeah. No, not anymore, man. <laughs> I haven't bought an apartment for decades now. So, um, it's completely changed. So my art story is like, you know, when, when I go out, people think that yeah, I'm this great socialized kind of like Angela knows everybody loves yeah. being in the forefront, but I've actually reverted back. And now rather than, you know, and, and I say it on my, on my little gallery, mm. rather than going out and partying and picking up girls, getting drunk, I prefer, you know, slaying dragons in, in my slaying. video games, you know, and, you know, turning into a super saiyan, watching Dragon Ball type of things, you know, that's what yeah. I really enjoy. So I've kind of really just left that life. And that's kind of my odd story because people, you know, when they meet me, you know, they see me, they're like, oh my God, what are you up to? I'm just like, I, I just really work and I just, you know, play games and they, right. they don't believe me, you know, right, right, right. They I can't see something it. completely different. So that's wow. kind of an odd story. Okay. Right. Just sitting there with a nice, beautiful brewed cup of tea as well. Yeah, that's it. You know, I'm beautiful girlfriend, my tea, and I enjoy my life that way. And I find myself much happier oh. at the end of the day, you know, and I have a lot of uh, thoughts on this. And I hope that, you know, guys who were in my position before can kind of 
you know, graduate from that eventually and, and mm. realize that this, there's more to life than, you know, the money and the cars and the girls and partying. There's much more to life. It took me a long time to realize that, a very, very long time to realize that. But right. I finally realized that now and I'm very happy. Right. Better late than never. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty late though. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, quick question. Are you thinking of kombucha or do you have kombucha on your menu? We do not. It's not on the roadmap right now. Okay. Of course, we've talked about it. Yeah. Um, you know, Patrick is- Because um, you do my, have fizzy drinks. Right. You do ferment. So. Um, Patrick, my co-founder, is a kombucha guy. He likes it. We think that it could be you know, somewhere down the line. But something that we've learned through our last year and a half of launching our brand is that sometimes you have to be a little more focused and mm. win customers with a certain type, like what are you known for, for a while before you start to diverge to branch and out branch and, out. So okay. we already have like, you know, our offering is already pretty out there right. compared to other bubbles. Right, right, you got right, gelatos, right. you got milkshakes, you got mixology drinks. We even have a secret menu of alcohol drinks. We got so much things Ooh, going on. Ooh, nice. Right? Animal style. Right, yeah, like we do. In and out. Really? We really do. We have a, a secret menu where we can get alcohol to our drinks. So we just have a lot of things Ooh. going on. And I think that confuses customers. They don't understand like, who are we? Especially in Taiwan too. Especially in Taiwan. Yeah. US customers are a lot more open to exactly. it. Exactly. So we just decided to kind of cut down a little bit, focus a little more, streamline operations. And eventually, you know, yeah, we'll explore things like kombucha maybe a little on. Okay. Maybe. Wow, wow, wow. That's amazing, man. So it sounds like this next year is going to be uh, a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I think, next, I think next year is going to be a year for the first time in many years where I could be a little more optimistic. As a startup, things are not always so yeah, optimistic. For sure. You know, it's, it's stressful. It's stressful. There's yeah. ups and downs. And through our journey, we've had ups and downs. And uh, right now we're riding kind of like on an up right now. Mm. Uh, I think 2024 will be an up year for us, even though the macro environments are terrible right now. Yeah. But to know that we're doing pretty well considering how our environment is today, it gives us the confidence that we're going to have a pretty good 2024. And then when things pick up, we're going to a little pedal to the metal after that. So right now, just enjoy, enjoy your success, enjoy life a little bit. You know, it's been tough for everybody in the company, myself, Patrick, to just try to enjoy our lives a little more. We sacrificed quite a lot to get to where we are right now mm. and hopefully reap a little bit of the fruits, right? Um, oh, that's man. what we hope for. Yeah. Shinkula. And Thank you. Thank cheers you. Thank to that. And uh, before we end, can you tell me a little bit about this drink that I'm about to pop open? I was afraid to pop it open earlier because I was afraid I was going to have to go to the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> but I've made it this far and I've been eyeing this thing for a bit. You brought quite a few drinks, but this one had my name on it because it has pistachio in it. And I'm a nutty person. I love nuts. So you're in for a surprise because to be honest, that one in particular, I'm not exactly <laughs> sure what it is, but it's either one of two drinks. It's oh. Pistachio with either Tieguaying tea, okay, uh, which is an oolong tea that we have. Find out, um, or it could be pistachio with ricotta cheese. Oh, Ooh, so I'm not too okay, sure because I think I brought both, and I don't think really. I it. Let's see. Which one is this? That tastes like Tieguan tea. There you go. So you got the Tieguan. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is a ricotta cheese. So we have a new series that just Does the ricotta launched. cheese one taste very. I mean, you can taste that ricotta. You could taste the ricotta. Okay, okay. Yeah. This is definitely the right. Tiguan. Yeah, that, um, I actually think ricotta ah, cheese one good. is very good. That's really good. Try it hot. You know, it's really nice. Um, the cottage cheese one. Yeah, both of them. But the ricotta cheese in particular, Ooh. I think is very unique and very delightful. Ooh. 
That is delicious. Oh my goodness. It's like an orgasm. Everyone run in there right now. This is on the menu. It's on the menu. Okay. It's limited time. So we're going to have it probably until I'm not too sure, maybe February until the new menu rolls out. Something like that. Did you have a pistachio gelato or ice cream on? We do. Okay. As part of this. So we have a pistachio. Maybe maybe that's the one I tried actually. We do have. And you guys have a red dragon fruit as well. Um, Actually the, the gelatos change every day. It changes every every oh, single day. Really? Yeah. So we always make new things, um, and we're very very quick at trying new ingredients. And sometimes there's crazy weird stuff. I think if you to go right now, there might be the candied bacon and oh, uh, blue, blue cheese. cheese. Right. I think that might be on the menu right Mentioned now. That last time, okay. Um, you know, some people love it. I not for me, man. Like, right? You know, no, but no blue let, cheese and ice cream for you. Hey, it's, it's a odd, little odd. It's different, but exactly. everybody has its own own palate. So right. And apparently that sells really well. So I know people like weird things, weird things. You, you know? know, I like the pistachio. I think it's delicious. Pistachio gelato is delicious. The red oolong. Oh, good. We try yeah. to have the red oolong there all the time because it's our kind of flagship product. Right. Um, super delicious. And then everything else is sometimes is there, sometimes is not. So go buy as much as you can. Right. Uh, the gelatos are great. Our drinks are even better in my opinion. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. So you just got to go every just single day. Go. Every day. Try something new. That's right. Spend That's a right. lot of money. Yeah, come on. I, I'm sick of sleeping in, on couches, man. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This poor ex-CEO founder. He has been hustling. Hustling, man. I saw him when he came back from LA. Oh, that was tough times, he, he looked, man. He looked tired. Uh, sleeping on the, on, on the floor of a basement, <laughs> on a mattress. It's like literally no bed for him. It was, it was crappy, but. I know. That's what it, it's expensive. LA is crazy, man. I know. It is crazy. It expensive. is a hustle out there. It is. It's a different world. That's a selling sunset world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Here in Taipei, you know, as long as I rent, you know, it's, it's a comfortable life. That's at right. At least for me. Right. Right. Exactly. Buying is another story. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole nother episode. <laughs> That's when you uh, launch your, uh, what is it called? A life? That, that company? Oh, lit. L- lit. <laughs> yes. Lit. The reality show Lit, Taylor Chen, Life in Taiwan. Right. Exactly. It is coming soon. It's in production. We're working on it. We're, we're negotiating right now. Count me Steven in. Spielberg. Count me in. <laughs> Why not another venture? Why not? Exactly. Exactly. We're always looking for new things. So amazing. Okay. So yeah, this year has been absolutely crazy. I'm glad you got through it. Thank um, you. you know, I want to thank you so much for sharing all these stories as well. They're absolutely amazing. I think they're very inspirational. Your honesty of, you know, kind of reflecting on these things is I think very inspirational as well. So thank you very much. Yeah. I My love pleasure. what you're doing. I love your teas. I wish you the best of success for next year. Thank you so much. Amazing. Man. Had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me here. It's my honor to be here. Always great to catch up. Kane. Yeah, yeah. Likewise. Likewise. We will uh, make something happen in Dallas. Take over Texas. Let's do it. Exactly. Exactly. Let's do it. it. Exactly. And then uh, whenever you're back here in Taiwan. Awesome, dude. Enjoy some tea. Being the odd ones out. Thank you very much. Good place to be. Thank you very much. Please come by. All right. Thank you. So thank you everyone for listening in. Go right now. Odd one out in Dongchu. Line up because it's going to be crazy. Go. Go get it while you can. (laughs) <laughs> All right, everyone. So have a wonderful, wonderful, odd and happy holiday season as happy well. Holidays. So happy, happy holiday. Year. Happy New Year. We wish you all the best. This will be the last episode for this year. Ron Chan, he is the man. He helped us to kind of ring in the new year as well. So yeah, we will see you all next year. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you.
Until then, peace. See you all next year. Peace.